deviant art users and bloggers beware. Oh, wordplay. A wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> oh, yeah, I saw you naked. That was cool. Welcome to Up Yours Downstairs, the podcast that's a million-dollar hole. I'm Kelly Anakin. And I'm Tom Schneider. We are properly married. Every night, barring Sundays. What a saucy opening <laughs> for a recap of a show that's kind of not saucy, only maybe... But it kind of is. It's kind of like when you make like an olive oil sauce for your pasta, <laughs> and you're like, is this a sauce, or am I just lazy? Or is it a, like a, a dressing? Yeah, a is, pasta there, dressing? is there a tonal issue here? <laughs> right. Is there mayonnaise involved? <laughs> These are some of the questions we have. <laughs> Regarding uh, the PBS Masterpiece Theater? Is Masterpiece Theater or is it Masterpiece Classic? classic? I think it's Classic, yeah. I don't even know the difference. I don't either. You know, it's like Diet Coke and Coke Zero. (laughs) Anyway, these are some of the questions we have regarding Mr. Selfridge. Yes. Which we will get to in a little while. Mm -hmm. Uh, First of all, hey, welcome back, everybody. Yes. It's been a while. It has been. We've missed you terribly we really have we really really have yes our vacation was nice yeah. but the whole time we were just fretting about our cousins <laughs> and what they would think of us not the whole time not the whole time <laughs> but we not were... the drunk times <laughs> yes which we... was most of the time. <laughs> that was that was most of the time mm-hmm. but yeah we were we were missing you we were sorry to take an extra week off yes but it was unfortunately necessary yeah uh nor do we have a long-term schedule worked out still right See previous notes regarding the drunk time <laughs> however we are really excited about mr selfridge and yes. after seeing the first episode uh we're definitely covering that yeah uh we're gonna stick with the every other week Right. Schedule, kind of, sort of. Yeah. So we're, we're sort of planning to do two episodes a week yes. to get it done in four podcasts. Or two two Mr. Selfridge hours per week. Right. Exactly. So this week will just be the, what was the American season premiere, mm-hmm. which was the British first two episodes. Uh, and then onward. So basically, each episode that comes out will bring you up to the week before whenever we release it. Which is uh, a little... I don't even understand what you just said, but I'm going <laughs> to sure. roll with it. That's fine. Um, yes, and I, Kelly, personally, I have some work travel coming up that might kind of throw a wrench in the next couple of weeks. So there may be some unorthodoxy going on. Yeah, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, <laughs> we're going to do our best. Right. But, you know... Watch uh, this space. I have to travel for the thing that makes it possible for this thing <laughs> to be a financial sinkhole. Right. So, <laughs> anyway, regardless, we're really excited about Mr. Selfridge. Yes. But again, that's going to have to wait because we have quite a bit of correspondence from our cousins to catch up on. That's right. Our first telegram is going to come from Cousin Allison, who writes, Hi, Cousins Kelly and Tom. I'm so happy that you read Deirdre's letter and gave her a cousin award. I also listened to Up Yours Downstairs with my two-year-old, and now know I am not the only terrible parent out there. Yay! My son also shouted Shank Bates along with the podcast. I wonder if Deirdre would be interested in a play date. He actually said Shank, though as far as I know, he does not know the definition yet, though his aunt did teach him the word shiv, so there's that. More importantly, he loved your angry Mrs. Patmore impression. Sadly, we didn't get a lot of that in season three, since she's gotten her Valium, or whatever she has been on these days that has calmed her down so much. He has made no comments about Angry Daisy yet. 
yours, Cousin Allison. Well, Angry Daisy is kind of a complex, uh, <laughs> you know, concept for a two-year-old to grasp. Right. I'm it's excited. Not as visceral. I'm excited about all of these, you know, toddler-aged fans <laughs> that we have, you know? That's true. Because they'll be entering their years of discretionary spending soon. <laughs> and uh, hopefully we can rely on them. Yes. For the things that we don't sell. They are our future. They are our future. So thank you, Cousins Allison, and again, Deirdre, for uh, exposing your children to our <laughs> podcast, which I don't really think is a terrible parent. Like, if you want to talk about exposing your kids to entertainment, like letting them watch horror movies when they're two, yeah. that's terrible. I feel like if it's only spoken word audio, you can't be too far wrong. Yeah, we don't get into really graphic descriptions of anything. Indeed. Yeah. No, and as far as Mrs. Patmore, you know, and her... <laughs> yes. Like, I think maybe she was going through menopause the first two seasons, and now that's calmed down. You may be onto something yeah. there. Yeah. It seems like, you know, she and Mrs. Hughes are dealing with the change. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's my theory. <laughs> no, that's not a bad theory. Next, we have a telegram from Cousin Elisa. Hi, Cousins Kelly and Tom. I am writing because I think that what Mary had was endometriosis, which can cause infertility. The treatment is surgery and has been since the early 1900s. The reason I think this is that I have a friend who had to have surgery for this problem in order to have kids. She did it twice, bless her crazy heart. It also causes pain, which would partly explain why Mary is such a bitch sometimes. Hmm. Also, speaking of babies and childbirth, I have a good friend who nearly died from preeclampsia only a few years ago while being treated in a top U.S. hospital. So I think that Dr. Clarkson wasn't lying when he told Lord Grantham and McGee that Sybil probably would not have made it anyways. I am wondering how Mary is going to be next season, since the two people she liked the most and was the least bitchy to were both killed off. Anyway, keep up the good work, and I look forward to the hiatus podcast, whatever they may be. I'm enjoying finding new shows slash movies to watch. It's almost like a book club in that respect. Kelly and Tom's Edwardian Film Club. Warmest regards, Cousin Elisa. Yeah, good call on the endometriosis. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. It does. And I also like the idea that she has some sort of painful condition, because it does explain a lot of her facial it expressions. It really does. <laughs> <laughs> the eyebrows that endometriosis built. <laughs> Yeah. Well, thank you. That, you know, actually provides a very valid explanation for Mary's mysterious baby having surgery. Yeah. I think that's our official ruling. Yeah. There. Yeah. And uh, we also look forward to our hiatus podcast, whatever, <laughs> whatever they may they be. May be. <laughs> Next, we have a telegram from cousin Lord Alexander of Tardis, who writes, Hello again, my dear cousins, Kelly and Tom. I've recently come upon a show that you might like. It's called The Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. It goes from 1908 to 1920, and it goes to different countries of the world and shows young Indy taking part in history, like him falling in love with Princess Sophie, the daughter of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand. I bet you'd love it. Can't wait to hear more of your podcast. Sincerely yours, Lord Alexander of Tardis. I can't believe we didn't think of that because you love that show. I was a big fan mm -hmm. when it aired, except for the episodes that are all about like kissing and mushy stuff like that. Oh, see, that to me sounds amazeballs. <laughs> well, I'd be more interested in it now <laughs> that I've discovered the joys of kissing, but... <laughs> No man, the one I man, the one where he escapes from a World War One prison camp. Oh, dude! Oh, I still remember a lot of that one. I remember because he they thought he was a, a like a like a narc or whatever the word for a narc would be in a prison camp. Le narc, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, and he was claiming to be French, and so some French guy detected it and asked him like what the three roads from Paris to Versailles were, <gasps> and he he was he he knew two of them, but he was really unsure. And then he broke in and was like, who won the World Series in 1909? <gasps> 
And he was like, oh, that guy. And I was like, okay, you're American. I get it. Okay, yeah, yeah. cool. Yeah, it was cool. Yeah, so we should definitely try and track that down. Yeah. This is great. I think the cousins are choosing the hiatus schedule for us, <laughs> which is really helpful. Yes. <gasps> Next, we have a telegram from Cousin Sean, who says, Hi, Tom and Kelly. Imagine my delight to hear you read my telegram on your latest podcast, Canadian Trunkadelic Part 1, on a long flight home from Tokyo. Thank you so much for the honor. Although you did not agree with everything I had to say, I am happy that it brought light to the subject of homosexuality in the early 20th century. My language was intentionally overly indignant for effect. While I admit I am a real stickler for details, for example, Mary and Edith could not have been the true children of Lady and Lord Grantham because the sisters have brown eyes, something impossible for two blue-eyed parents to produce. Hmm. In fact, I am not upset at Julian Fellow's treatment of homosexuality at all, just disappointed. He could have made this a great teaching moment and helped us all better appreciate the significant progress the gay community has made over the past 100 years, much as he could have done with labor relations, etc. Of course, Tom, you are correct. The characters in Downton Abbey are an anomalous mini-society created to appeal to modern audiences. The fact that there is a gay character in the series at all is a testament to this. I suspect that Julian Fellows may have set a trap for himself here. He introduced Thomas as gay very early in the series and then probably found there was nothing he could really do to maintain a storyline with this character while being historically accurate. If memory serves me correctly, nothing happened with Thomas regarding sexual orientation for the latter part of year one and all of year two. If Thomas were exposed, he would have to leave, go to homo prison, lavender filters, (laughs) or commit suicide. (laughs) Sorry, that's fantastic. Yes. I am quite sure that if Rob James Collier had not renewed his contract, Thomas would have surely suffered one of these fates. Instead, we see an acceptance of his sexuality by virtually all of the characters. This may give fellows more freedom to allow Thomas to openly pursue love interests in the future, and if he does, the anachronisms will only get worse. There are many things fellows could have done to spice up Thomas's storyline. Borrowing from Maurice, Thomas could have had a relationship with an aristocrat and then blackmailed said aristocrat when he is rejected. Imagine a hidden romance with Thomas and Matthew. When Thomas <laughs> finally agrees to wed Mary, he breaks it off with Thomas and Thomas blackmails him. Endless episodes of drama. A more plausible storyline would be to have a female servant fall in love with Thomas. He could constantly refuse her advances or he could play along to cover up his true identity. Another story arc could be constant pestering by the cast to get married and help him find a suitable wife. So many things could have added depth to Thomas's role in that series. You were correct that Mrs. Hughes could have known a poofter in the past, though at the time knowing one wouldn't necessarily lead to tolerance. That Thomas may have singularly reasoned that he was different by nature and his differences were acceptable. E.M. Forrester, who was gay, apparently did, but was closeted until the day he died. And that Lord Grantham may have been perfectly comfortable talking about his dalliances at school with his valet, even though if exposed, those dalliances would have meant expulsion, as it did for Evelyn Waugh's brother. Yes, any one of these individuals might have reacted this way, and I would have been okay with that. But the fact that the entire cast was so enlightened is what caused me to roll my eyes. On Sandusky, a great analogy, but the context is very different. Joe Paterno, while close to Sandusky, also had his own reputation and millions of dollars at stake, which could have caused him to look the other way. That cannot be said of Thomas. Nobody liked him. He was a servant whose job became redundant with the return of Bates, and there was no financial incentive to keep him on. 
I really do hope you review Maurice and or another country. I think it would be of great interest to many of your fans. Thanks again for selecting my telegram for the show and best wishes for future success, Sean. P.S. Another idea to explore. I noticed that no one ever knocks on a closed door on the show. Servants and aristocrats alike seem to feel free to barge in on anyone at any time, and those behind closed doors never seem to be bothered by this. Perhaps you can look at the state of privacy in the era. It's interesting. Yeah, I haven't really thought of that. Uh, I mean, I do think just now that, you know, when you think about the fact that a servant is coming into every aristocrat's room while they're still asleep in the morning and lighting a fire. So there's, you know, the privacy borders are obviously uh, fairly, you know. Uh, blurry blurry i mean yeah. you know i would i think there's probably something to it although it may also just be the equivalent of nobody ever saying goodbye on the telephone oh, right in movies and Which, tv that drives me nuts that's yeah. one of the few things that i just somehow can't accept um yeah but you know actually one thing that i hadn't thought about about everybody's sort of acceptance of thomas's homosexuality is going forward it is only going to increase yeah. the amount of anachronism that is true and and i do i do Especially the, like, some sort of female relationship, either intentionally as a, you know, as a beard uh-huh. or otherwise. I, that really would have been... It would have been a, a great... Yeah. And, great plot line. Yeah. Agreed. Um, and I would say, I think Fellows already did borrow from Maurice with the blackmail plot. With, right. That uh, was his first, uh, the Crowborough. Yeah. I'm like, what was his name? Yeah. You know, the guy that looks like Pete Campbell. <laughs> uh, yeah. So he had that whole thing with the, with the Duke of Crowborough. Right. And then in year two, there was a little sexual orientation thing, I thought, with that, uh, blinded soldier that he and Sybil were helping to rehabilitate. Right. And then yeah. when they were like, oh, we're moving right. and then he killed him. Like, there was clearly like a, yeah, a flirtation kind of happening. Like, it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't overt and I thought it was better for it, but mm-hmm. I thought that, you know, that was enough for me to kind of keep that toward the top but yeah um yeah we're definitely intri- interested in maurice in another country like mm-hmm. we're very curious now so thank you sean for yes. uh, piquing our interest and encouraging us to learn more yes and next we have a telegram from cousin rose who writes dear cousins kelly and tom i enjoyed your recent discussion of how a gay man like thomas would have been perceived in the 1920s i want to rip I want to recommend a book to you, Hannah Blank's Straight, The Surprisingly Short History of Heterosexuality. She explains how the idea of sexual orientation was invented in the late 19th century. Before that, people really had no concept of being heterosexual or homosexual. There was simply correct sexual behavior, and then there were sinful acts. And sinful acts between people of the same sex weren't really distinguished from sinful acts between people of the opposite sex. It was all sin all the time. So anyway, the terms heterosexual and homosexual were invented in 1868 by German Karl Ulrichs. He was arguing against a law that criminalized sex between men. He proposed the idea that people were born this way and couldn't help their attraction to men. So it was pretty forward-thinking for the times, but unfortunately the idea was kind of twisted by some social scientists and psychiatrists into the concept that heterosexual people were normal and homosexual people were abnormal. So that's a super simplified version of Hannah Blank's book. It's fascinating. Check it out. 
It's hard to say exactly how these ideas spread to ordinary people, but my guess is that the Downton populace probably had picked up the idea that sexual orientation exists and people were one way or the other. It took a lot longer to develop the idea of bisexuality. I agree with you that knowing Thomas personally would make people more understanding. I love, love, love your podcast. It's gotten me through many a stressful or boring day at work. I'm looking forward to your hiatus schedule. Yours, etc. Cousin Rose, writing from the outer circle of Dante's Inferno. Wow, I bet it's nice weather there. Yeah, it's a little uh, bland, as I recall. <laughs> yeah, that book sounds fantastic. Yes, so it we'll does. So we'll definitely try to check that out and report back to the rest of the cousins yeah. on uh, interesting factoids. Indeed. And I mean, the problem with all history always is that it tells us what sort of elites, whether intellectual elites or social elites, were doing. And it's very hard ever to find out what the average you know, housemaid would have thought about anything. Right, right. Next up is a very lengthy telegram from Cousin Maddie. My dearest cousins Kelly and Tom, greetings and congratulations on surviving another season of Downton Abbey, which is more than can be said of Sybil or Matthew. Boom! (laughs) You have both been on top form lately. I can't wait to download the new podcast every week. Lately, I had even been watching the new series three episodes while thinking about what you'll have to say about particular events. I knew, for example, that you would have some choice and hilarious words to say about Baby City version one, (laughs) and I was certainly not disappointed. I am waiting on tenterhooks to find out what shows and movies you'll be covering in the interim before series four. Also, I would love to do something to support this highly entertaining and, of course, free podcast. A lot of the podcasts I listen to are either extremely low-tech or unreasonably filled with ads, so I am very grateful to the rare cast that has good sound quality, great hosts, and no ads. Perhaps I could help out by purchasing some official Up Yours Downstairs merchandise. I could certainly be convinced to buy a Shank Bates t-shirt or a Cousin of the Week bumper sticker, or a Team Edith, she's done something jolly with her hair tote bag, (laughs) or a Baby Sibby is cuter than your baby travel mug. I've been listening to some of the Bald Move podcasts since she joined their network, and their constant hawking of their Amazon affiliate link got me wondering if there might be a way you could set up an Up Yours Downstairs Amazon account with a wish list of the history books you'd like to have for the show. That way, supportive cousins could buy them for you as gifts, letting us feel like Reggie Swire for a brief time. (laughs) You've mentioned before that some of the books you want are hard to find, and you may already know this, but for a relatively small fee, one or two dollars, most public libraries can get interlibrary loans of even quite obscure titles. Obviously, you won't get to keep those books forever, but it is an option for expensive or difficult to find books. I work at a library and I'm often surprised at the number of patrons who don't know that interlibrary loan is still an option. I've been watching some other British period dramas lately, some of which were recommended by other cousins. The two shows I would most like to see you cover, even though they're slightly out of the Downton time period, are Upstairs, Downstairs, and The Foresight Saga. I tried to watch the old version of Upstairs, Downstairs, and couldn't really get into it after a few episodes. So I was pleasantly surprised to thoroughly enjoy its 2010 reboot. You don't have to know anything in particular about the show's earlier incarnations, since Rose Buck is the only character who carries over into the new show. As the title suggests, the show splits its focus between the servants and the aristocratic residents of 165 Eaton Place in London. There are a lot of potential parallels between it and Downton Abbey, with some things handled better and some not quite as well. They do have some actual non-white characters, so that's a plus. There's a dubious chauffeur-related romance, a sharp-tongued matron, a semi-secretly gay character, a ginger maid, worries about (laughs) producing an heir, and so on. There is some really solid acting and a lot to enjoy here. It tries to be more socially conscious than Downton, though a lot of the plot lines seem rushed due to the series only having nine episodes. And speaking of rushing the story along... 
The 2002 Foresight Saga's sheer volume of time jumps puts Downton to shame. Without giving too much away, characters who aren't born yet in the first episode are getting married by the sixth. <laughs> it starts out in the heart of the Victorian era, but it is up past World War One by the end of the 10-episode series. It's hard to really express my feelings about this show without getting excessively flowery. So let me just say that this is as good as British costume dramas get. The characters may be lovable or hateable, but they always seem like real people. The writing and acting show extraordinary depth, and I was genuinely saddened to reach the end of the series. There are a ton of issues explored in both these shows that would make for a great Up Yours Downstairs discussion fodder. And finally, here are some random thoughts I've built up over the last few Up Yours Downstairs episodes. According to Wikipedia, usual disclaimers apply, the actor who played Mr. Pamuk's real name is Theodore Peter J.K. Tapticlis, so I'm going to go out on a limb and say he's probably not a straight-up white dude. Again, according to Wikipedia, it sounds like E.M. Forrester was probably gay. He wasn't super open about it for obvious reasons, and there's no Oscar Wilde-esque smoking gun, but that appears to be the critical consensus. When the Crawleys inevitably run out of money sometime in season five, I really hope the show goes meta and they rent out parts of Downton to film crews. Just think what Violet would say about having actors cluttering up the cluttering up the place. I can't believe there is one podcast that has recently referenced Doctor Who, Friday Night Lights, Ever After, and Daria. Was this show specifically designed for me? <laughs> Yours faithfully, Cousin Maddie. P.S. Sorry this ended up being crazy long. If only I put this much time and effort into my grad school work. <laughs> Well, thank you, Cousin Maddie. And uh, kind of point by point. Yes. As far as us making any money, that would be great. Part of the problem <laughs> is that we don't have a whole lot of time right. to set up the mechanisms to make money. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're hoping to remedy that mm-hmm. uh, in the semi-near future. So stay tuned. We'll try. We'll try. But I think actually having the book wish list sounds great. Yeah. Because we that... love books. We do love books. And also, uh, I think probably... up. Um, I always want to call it up yours downstairs. Oh, right. Uh, upstairs, downstairs. We have, we watched the, the first, first, I think just the first episode. Yeah. And I hated it, <laughs> but I also might have been drinking. It's possible. Uh, it's hard to say anyway, yeah. but I think we'd definitely be interested in covering it. Yeah. So many of you requested it. Yeah. Uh, and also the foresight saga. I mean, everybody's had nothing but great things to say about it. Yeah. And I think it would actually be really interesting since it does actually fall in, you know, at least it checks in at the time period. That <laughs> right. There's this a is stop. Technically yeah. about, um, I just think it would be interesting to sort of see how they portray the progression through those different eras. Right. Because that's something that's a bit harder to find because it's generally just in one era or exactly. another. Yeah. And hey, we've been stalking you for years, Cousin Maddie, <laughs> designing this podcast to meet your every need. So in, in, I'm, I'm glad you found it. Yes. And I would also, I would love them to rent out Downton to film crews, particularly if a member of that crew could be played by Bob Balaban. Oh, totally. Maggie Smith would be like, I love Bob Balaban. He's a wonderful person, but I won't want him on my fucking set. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Next, we have a telegram from Cousin Patricia, who writes, Dear Cousins, you did my anger justice from my fresh viewing of the Downton Abbey finale, and thank you so much for your explanation of events. Much like you predicted, that anger is forgotten now, as is any sympathy for Dan Stevens. Your thoughts on Mr. Stevens getting too big for his britches soothed my shock and anger at fellows, but I still think he enjoyed putting that shocker at the end of his little drama. I can see him now in his study with a glass of brandy chuckling about Dan Stevens thinking he will have as much future success as his friend Sherlock, Benedict Cumberbatch. 
Like you, my dear cousin said, he's not going to be the next supervillain on a movie franchise or even another period drama on a big cable channel. Even though he seems to be trying a new mustachioed darker look with beard scruff, Dan Stevens is just too... Well, he's just a bit too boring looking. Good looking, yes, but not that interesting. By the way, speaking of Cumberbatch, he, as referenced above, is in an HBO miniseries, Parade's End. Same time period with World War I and women's suffrage and such. Looks so good and made with an impressive HBO budget. As far as what this cousin is looking forward to next season on Downton Abbey, Dame Harriet Walter. She is excellent. I loved her on Sense and Sensibility with Emma Thompson and Kate Winslet. She is the kind of actress that often plays supporting roles that steal the show. In fact, I'm looking forward more to her appearance on Downton Abbey than I ever was for Shirley MacLaine. I think she will fit in just fine as an old friend of our favorite Dowager Countess. Thank you so much for your excellent podcast. I love listening to your banter as I ride my bike, laughing aloud, but always with my eye on the traffic. You're not angry anymore, cousin, Patricia. <laughs> Fantastic. Yes. yes and uh, I'm also excited about Dame Harriet Walter. Mm-hmm. Uh, also interested in Parade's End. We yeah. kind of were aware of that. So basically... When we do finally set the hiatus schedule, we're just going to go back through these podcasts <laughs> right. and go back through the letters and just kind of collate everything. And then there was the thread on Facebook of things that people were suggesting. Yeah. So, so we've got... Don't worry, cousins. We don't we, have a shortage of options. Yeah. We'll, we'll definitely fill the time. Absolutely. Yeah. Next, we have a telegram from Cousin Laura. Ahoy, ahoy, Cousins Kelly and Tom. Are you watching and more importantly, podcasting Mr. Selfridge? Yes, we are. <laughs> I want so badly to like it, but I can't decide. Last night's episode was entertaining, but the first episode of Downton drew me in immediately, and I was, of course, hoping for the same addictive excitement. My major issue with the show is the lack of exposition. This is not a case of I can't handle suspense or being left in the dark while a mystery is revealed. This is a case of needing Tom Repeat's history to be called Tom Prequel's history. Why is this American in London? Where did he work prior to this? Were there stores like this in America and he wanted to bring the Macy's style over to the UK? Was the real-life Selfridge so famous that I'm supposed to know these things? After watching last night's episodes, I'm not sure if I want to see the rest of the series or just rewatch Mansfield Park. It took me forever to figure out that Rose Selfridge played Fanny Price, and that's where I'd seen her. Or just rewatch Miracle on 34th Street to see Macy's kick Gimbel's ass. I'm sure if you two podcasted, your snark would make me watch Selfridge religiously. So I'm looking forward to seeing your hiatus schedule. Luncheon out, Cousin Laura. P.S. The other thing that would help Selfridge would be a Downton Abbey crossover episode. Edith could shop for scarves or something and meet the handsome, whis- the handsome window dresser. Thoughts? Uh, first of all, I would imagine that wouldn't work out. Uh, I imagine that window dresser isn't a ladies' man. I mean, I could be wrong. Yeah, yeah. But he, you know. I mean, either way, he seems pretty preoccupied with his work. Right. Yeah. And I actually, I was uh, just looking up a few of the uh, facts about Mr. Selfridge on ye old Wikipedia. Uh, The first one that I uh, loved is he was born in Ripon. (gasps) Shut up. He He was was not. He was born in Ripon, Wisconsin. (laughs) City of a Thousand Dreams Jr. That's right. <laughs> That's amazing. Yes. Um, and he, he did, as will be mentioned in tonight's show, start out uh, delivering newspapers. It was his first job. And he, he kicked around a few other jobs and finally wound up working for Marshall Field. Ah. As Marshall Field's uh, was a fairly recent but, you know, booming business at the time. 
He is the person that invented the uh, phrase, there are only X shopping days left till Christmas. Wow. That was his idea. And either him or Marshall Field invented the phrase, the customer is always right. Uh-huh. Um, people aren't sure which one it was. Although also, Cesar Ritz, we've mentioned before, the founder of the Ritz chain, who uh, Prince Edward not yet king, uh, found and brought to fame. Mm-hmm. He had the phrase, le client n'a jamais tort, meaning the customer is never wrong, mm-hmm. which is not quite the same thing. So yeah, he, it was through Marshall Fields that he got into the retail business. He started there as a stock boy, but mm-hmm. worked his way up to, you know, uh, assistant to Marshall Field, right, basically. Right. And that's, that's sort of where he, uh, was leading into this show. Okay. And I didn't really, I, th- you know, the Wikipedia article goes on, but some of that might turn out to be spoilers for later to an extent. Yeah, because that I don't was wanna... what I was going to say is that I, I did not have any particular expository issues as far as Selfridge's background mm-hmm. because to me it seems like the kind of thing they're going to reveal gradually. Yeah. Um, I had some expository issues, particularly regarding character introduction for a lot of the other characters. Yeah. But we'll get into that in the actual right, discussion. Right. Yeah, well, so hopefully you're going to stick with it. We we liked it more than many people seem to. Yes. Uh, but we're excited about it. Yeah. As I keep saying. But <laughs> before we get to that, there's one more telegram left. Which Tom will now read. <laughs> yes. Uh, it is from Cousin Marie, who writes, Ahoy hoy, Kelly and Tom. First off, I want to say I'm sorry for waiting so long to write you. I've been listening to your podcast since the first Titanic podcast, and listened to all your releases more times than I'd care to admit. You two are just undeniably good company for a long commute or session on the workout bike. I would have written a long time ago, but I've long feared I'm the black cat of fan publishings, since my touch seems to bring fan fiction, artists, and blogs to their knees. Usually, it's better safe than sorry. But I decided to go ahead and take a chance now, because one, your show is so amazing, there's no way my curse could take you down now. And two, I realized something while listening to the Rippin' A City of a Thousand Dreams episode that might just change your mind about the revealed name of the latest Crawley heir. By marriage, Marion Matthews' new baby is the nephew of Thomas Branson. Branson is the uncle of baby George. Branson is the monkey's uncle. As in curious George, that, the curious little monkey. That's right. <laughs> Clearly, this is a sure sign Baron Fellows is listening to your podcast and not just a wonderfully coincidental nod to the contemporary King of England. If nothing else, it gives me a reason to smile over the name choice, and I will certainly remember it every time the boy's name comes up in Series 4. In the meantime, I can't wait to see what you have in store for use this upcoming hiatus. Best of tidings, Cousin Marie. That's one English monkey. (laughs) It is a very English monkey. (laughs) But he's got an Irish uncle. He certainly does. And congratulations, Marie. Uh, You are our cousin of the week. Yes. Because we love talking about Branson and monkeys. (laughs) We do. Just our favorite topic. Uh, And I'm just going to go out on a limb and say all these other things that you've commented on or written to. Uh, those people were losers. Yeah. This had nothing to do with you. We hate those people. We do hate those people. <laughs> so deviant art users and bloggers beware. <laughs> we're on the warpath for Cousin Marie. That's right. So that is uh, up to date on our correspondence. Excellent. A bit long, but very informative, I thought. Yeah, I thought so too. You guys write such great telegrams. It's really true. You're so fantastic. <laughs> we just like you guys. Yes. All right. Now, at long last, <laughs> the much-vaunted recap slash discussion. 
of Mr. Selfridge. Yes. Starring <gasps> Jeremy Piven. That's right. It's Piven time. It is Piven time. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. That's sort of the big, uh, you know, headline going into Mr. Selfridge is that it's Piven and it's, I mean, obviously he's American, so that's fine. Right. But it's a, you know, British period drama, mm-hmm. which is not what Mr. Piven has been known for in the past. It is not. By any means, no. Um, First of all, I want to say that I really like the credits on this show. Yeah. Uh, I think yeah. they're very effective. It's hard to do a credit sequence really well. Mm-hmm. And I think that this one... I was excited about the show based on the credit sequence, which I think is what you kind of want. Yeah. And I was excited to see it again because it moves very quickly. Right. Which is very sort of in line with, you know, because this show is very much about progress. Yes. And about changing the times. Yes. Uh, and so I really liked, I don't even remember specifically what I liked. We can talk about it next week when I've actually <laughs> yeah. seen it. Yeah. Oh, and speaking of the show's opening, <sighs> we... We didn't get Linny. We yeah. know she was there. We've heard from our cousins, but we, we watched, watched the... it on the PBS website. First right. of all, we would like to say if you can DVR it, do that because the PBS web interface is just awful. Like their their media player, it's just weird. It was, yeah, it's very counterintuitive. It doesn't gel well with other media players that we've used. Right. So PBS, get your shit together, <laughs> uh, cousins, please. Donate to PBS so they can hire a developer <laughs> to improve this wretched piece of equipment. Right. Uh, so we didn't get Linny this time. If anybody has a link to the Linny intro, we would love to see it. Absolutely. Uh, because that's what kills me is like they have her like be like, oh, like blah, blah, blah. It's Masterpiece Classic. And can you not show me the Linny? Right. Show me the Linny. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, going forward, if yeah, we've continues... got it all. We've got it all queued up for the next episode. Yeah, we're gonna be you know linied up. Linny watches is in force. Linny watch twenty thirteen. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so sort of getting into the episode here, we start off with our Mister Selfridge, unsurprisingly, being dressed up and and walking through London and heading into a store. It's Gamage's department store. Gamage's department store. But it's not a store like you and I are accustomed to. No, it's just sort of a dark cellar. <laughs> <laughs> Presided over by an undertaker. Right. It's basically the Adams family house, but only in Great Britain. Right. Uh, and he is, he is there to buy gloves, uh, but he does not know what gloves he wants. He wants to see them all and decide. The shop girl who is... Uh, presenting the gloves oh yeah that's what the shop girl and shop girl did too she was i know salesman. i wrote i actually wrote in my notes that this show is so much better than shop girl because <laughs> i fucking hated shop girl you you did stupid steve martin masturbatory fantasy anyway that's neither here nor there <laughs> it's not very much outside of our scope uh <laughs> but jeremy piven turns on the charm oh. which He's got a panty dropper of a smile. <laughs> like, that smile, that is the smile that dropped a thousand panties. Yes. Uh, so if you enjoy seeing Jeremy Piven turn on the charm in this scene, you're in luck. Because he's going to turn on the charm every two minutes for the run of the series. Yes, yeah, basically. So, you know, you, you, you got to be on board with that. Yes. To be on board with the show. Uh, so he, he talks his way behind the counter with the shop girl and talks her into pulling out all the gloves and scattering them about willy-nilly. But then the undertaker looms up behind him and says, might I cock block you, sir? <laughs> <laughs> now, okay, here's what I have to say. <sighs> On the one hand, 
I admire the chutzpah <laughs> of Mr. Selfridge. Right. I, I love what he's doing. I love his energy. You know, we'll kind of, as we like talk more about the episode, just mm-hmm. like his work ethic and just like the way that he works. I found it very inspiring. Yes. At the same time, as someone who worked in retail customer service <laughs> for 13 years, I really wish that he had not done the things that he did. <laughs> no, because honestly, yeah. that shop, uh, we learn later that the shop girl's name is Miss Towler. Yes. Uh, the shop where she is working, I'm like, that would be amazing. That is how we wanted to treat the customers <laughs> right. when I worked in retail rather than offering stupid demos that they never wanted or trying to show them all the crap that we had for sale. Right. We just wanted them to come in know what they wanted and buy it and any other demands on our time would be answered with a stiff fuck you yeah like it's kind of unfortunate yeah well just because especially now like these principles have been absorbed into the customer service industry to the extent that it is freaking annoying (laughs) it is so annoying yeah because you know if you go into a store as a customer there's always a greeter they always are like oh what can i help you find today and then 10 other employees ask you the same thing yeah. unless you're in Best Buy. <laughs> right. Where... Then you can wander the tundra. Yeah. It's like <laughs> the Twilight Zone or something. You're like, where is everybody? <laughs> um, and I mean, and again, I mean, I guess, you know, everything's moving online now anyway. Right. So it's not like... Because, I mean, this is the thing. I think, you know, maybe a happy medium. You know, if you want customer service, okay, great. If you ask for it politely, we'll give it to you. <laughs> right. Otherwise, we're going to withhold. Yeah. Like, we will show you the gloves, and if and when you ask us to. Yeah. Otherwise, just name your glove and get the hell out. <laughs> okay, so that's my editorial opinion about the work of Henry Gordon Selfridge. Right. And the way that it impacted my life specifically. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, but... He is not allowed to shop the way that he wants to. Uh, the Undertaker kicks him out. He says, what if he just wants, what if he's just looking? And the Undertaker says that it is a shop, not an exhibition. See, that's my point. I wish it wasn't an exhibition. <laughs> right. But Mr. Selfridge takes the hint, walks on out, and then, somewhat, somewhat shockingly, not, like not dramatically shockingly, right. but, uh, Miss Towler, Agnes Towler, right? Yes. Uh, is dismissed without a reference. Bam. That's it. Yeah. Because – and look, this was not her fault. He totally right. coerced her mm-hmm. into all of this. Yeah. But, you know, and, and, this is well, this and it, is 1908. This is how things work. Right. Well, because The Undertaker says, we don't need your sort here. Yes. Like, which is the first of many comments or awkward looks <laughs> or shots that set up kind of our primary quibble with this show, which is why is everybody hot and bothered or suspecting each other of being hot and bothered constantly on this show? Yeah. Yeah. Let's be clear. We certainly have issues with this show. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt about that. But then, you know, we've, (laughs) if our podcast has made nothing else clear, it's that we have issues with Downton Abbey as well. Well, and I think also it's just, you know, sort of like we had some lowered expectations just based on the feedback that we'd seen so far. That definitely. So the fact that it wasn't like totally horrible. Yeah. Yeah, somebody called it a shit show, which, you know, and I like a good shit show. Uh, Valley of the Dolls is one of my favorite movies, but I, I was just surprised by how engaged I was by it. Yeah. But anyway, so he dismisses her 
with the implication that she is a whore of some kind right for being coerced into showing someone some gloves that's a pretty classic uh, victim which blaming. i think is the plot of the spinal tap album smell the glove <laughs> but that is neither here nor there <laughs> The Undertaker turns it to 11, <laughs> kicks her out on the street. Then we see Mr. Selfridge standing in a giant hole. It's a million dollar hole, he says. It's no ordinary hole. That's right. It's no ordinary <laughs> hole. <laughs> Which, with all the, like, intentional sexual in the innuendo right? in this show, then he's just throwing this around just with yeah. a straight face. It's a million dollar hole. Um, <laughs> Good night, everybody. <laughs> yes, and it is it is so valuable because this is the site of the future Selfridges. Yes, uh, he, there is a big Selfridge and Waring. Yes, Selfridge and Waring. We do see that sign. There's press gathered. He's and he's you know giving them his spiel about how you know they ask him why are you building this shop at the dead end of Oxford Street, and he says you know when this store is open, this is going to be the live end of Oxford Street. I just love his showmanship. Yeah. And <sighs> Jeremy Piven is a good actor. Like, he's not great, mm. but I think he's mainly equal to this task. I agree. I have some problems, actually, with the way they wrote his dialogue. Agreed. Which we maybe will talk about a little bit later. But yeah. in general, I think he's a good fit for this role, mostly. Except for the weird sex stuff. Right. Because we don't understand what's going on with that. Yeah. But yet, I'll tell you who doesn't appreciate Mr. Selfridge's show, showmanship oh, oh. is Mr. Waring. He very much does not. Yeah. He uh, pulls out of Selfridge and Waring uh, in the middle of this whole during this press event. Uh-huh. Which seems like, could this not have been done in an office of some sort? Um, you know, the Warings are notorious drama queens. <laughs> apparently so. Mr. Selfridge very upset as he said that he um, Waring had given him had given him his word as an Englishman, and to which Waring says, "Well, these things happen," which just goes to prove what I've always said: never trust the English. <laughs> never actually said that before, but um, well, we're going to say it from now on. That's right. So, Mr. Selfridge, nothing he can do. He does get Waring to promise that he will keep this out of the papers, that it won't go public, that he has lost his financial backing. Well, I'm sure that's the last we'll ever hear of that. Right. You know, problem solved. Yep. Moving on. Have we, at this point, seen Miss Teller go to her home after having been sacked? Well, let's talk about that. Okay, so Miss Keller goes home after being sacked, right. and she's talking to this guy who I had assumed was her husband. Right. The, who is his not his relationship with her is not at all made clear in the and first scene. And it seems very like husbandy. Yes. Uh, including a little bit of physical uh, Yeah, because she has lost her job and their landlady is, you know, pestering her for the rent and she cuz it was a couple days after yeah, this, apparently. Yeah, because the the landlady's getting on her about the rent and her male companion who uh-huh. apparently is at home all day. Yes. So he has been hearing about it. And at, it is at this point that she tells him that she has lost her job and has been spent the last few days looking for a new mm-hmm. place and has not found one. He is displeased by this. Uh, he is he has been looking for a job for a much longer time and failing, and he gets so angry with her that he he kind of grabs her lapels a bit. Well, he gets mad because she's like, "How come I have to be the one to get a job?" Right, and you know he yeah manhandles her a bit. Yeah, and then she says, 
something about, you know, if I'd known you were going to turn out like him, something, something. Right. It's all just really unclear. Yeah. So this is the exposition issues that we right. had. Because like, this all by the end of the episode, this all makes sense. Yeah. But it makes no sense the first time you see it. And, and that doesn't I, appear to be intentionally confusing. Yeah. They, they I just, think they just got sloppy. And yeah. I don't... Because there's, you know, there's no point in making it unclear. Right. You know? Exactly. It doesn't serve anything for us to be confused. You know, it would have been just as easy for the landlady when she's like yelling at her. She's like, oh, I've been telling your brother all day. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, the brother's name is George. Yes. Much like uh, <laughs> the nephew of Branson. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so there's there's that situation. So that's kind of... It seems like our sort of second protagonist is Miss Towler. Yeah, definitely. And we're she's, following her journey. Yeah, she's she's built second. She's, she's our other POV, basically. Mm-hmm. That's true. But back with Mr. Selfridge, he uh, makes contact with a Frank Edwards... Frank Edwards is uh, has been reported to Mr. Selfridge as the best connected man in London. He is a newspaper reporter, and Mr. Selfridge tells him, "Hey, I am planning on buying a lot of advertising, so newspapers who give me good press coverage are would be, you know, right. well well compensated for it." Essentially, I mean, yeah. he, you know, he's a little bit more circumspect than that, but not much. Yeah. He's making it clear. And I was I was very disappointed. I was like, oh, I thought this show was going to be all about strong journalistic ethics. <laughs> no, you're thinking of The Wire. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yes. So this is uh, – and this – Frank Edwards, whose name I keep forgetting as soon as I hear it. Well, uh, he's got a first name, last name thing going on. Yeah, that's true. And he is hovering in the background throughout – this episode just being kind of seedy looking yeah i don't think he's supposed to be as seedy as he appears but he comes up look i mean i think he's a little bit of a man whore Uh uh-huh but like if you're a well-connected man you're gonna be a little bit of a man whore in this time period particularly the kind of people that he appears to know yeah However, he's just so, like, socially clumsy. Yeah, it just, he doesn't seem like, because Mr. Selfridge is such a, you know, glad-handing, uh, you know. Huckster. Huckster, <laughs> yes. And then to see this other guy who has apparently made his whole name by networking, just, you, you don't see the appeal of him, yeah. basically. But, Nor does his face appeal. I think it's right. the mustache, actually. Yeah. Because I also, because like the second scene that he was in, I'm like, who the hell is this guy? <laughs> right. Where'd he come from? <laughs> Why are you doing this to Mr. Selfridge? I'll fight you. <laughs> <gasps> yeah, so then uh, Mr. Selfridge is installing his family. Yes. Who've arrived from America. Uh, so cute. He's got four kids. Mm-hmm. And then his wife, Rose, who's played by Frances O'Connor, yes. who's phenomenal, she better have more to do in subsequent episodes, Agreed. or I think my high opinion of this show is going <laughs> to drop like a stone. Yeah. But it turns out that they uh, were living in Battle Creek, Michigan. Yeah. Which is interesting. It's uh, uh, We've been told it is one of the most boring cities in the U.S. Yes. We haven't been there ourselves. It may have been really exciting, though, in 1908. That's true. That was that was a much hotter time for... Uh, uh, Kellogg's? Yes. Battle Creek, Michigan, where Kellogg's was, you know, first manufactured and right. all that stuff. Um, so anyway, they're there. His mother is with them. So his whole family is his mother, 
whose name I never caught. Uh, his yeah. his mother, his wife, and his four children. Right. Uh, his he, mother, who I actually I originally thought the mother was a servant, like a, a governess. I did too, but then it was made yeah, clear. Yeah. But so then. So they all get there and he shows uh, Rose their room and he's like, hey, look at this nice bed I got from Paris so we can bang. Yeah. Because he says it's box sprung. Yeah. Which, uh, it's, I remember the first time I realized the difference between a box spring and not a box spring. Yeah. And I was like, wow, that's yeah. really nice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's really cool. I like this relationship. Yes. They're showing married people doing it yeah. and enjoying it. Yeah. They have they have more chemistry in their first scene than Matthew and Mary kind of ever did. Than basically anyone who's supposed to be in love with each other on Downton Abbey. Yeah. Yeah. Um No, their their relationship is really we like it a we lot. We yeah, we really are enjoying their relationship. Yeah. Um and it's just it's just so refreshing yeah. to see a couple on PBS who really appear to like each other. They really do. And and it's not this whole negotiation all the time. And I mean, yeah. I think part of that is that they're supposed to be Americans. Mm-hmm. So, you know, but at at the same time, with everybody else that they have sexual chemistry with on the show, they're so awkward. So uh-huh. they're this weird combo of like intense sexual desire for each other and intense desire to express that. Yeah. And then, but when they're in the face of literally anybody else, like this puritanical American streak comes right. out. And I mean, I guess it's because it's set in London, but the British people on Mr. Selfridge seem so much more sexually permissive and savvy than anybody on Downton Abbey. Yeah, that's that's very true. Well, and also this show, like, everybody seems to be, like... On the make. Yeah. and just Sex-wise. Like, yeah, everybody seems to be a little flushed at all yeah. times. Yeah, and I guess, I mean... It's a little bit more of a middle-class situation. A little bit, yeah. You know, everybody that he's dealing with are clearly well-off. Right. But... Well, what's interesting about this show compared to Downton Abbey is it's not showing upper class and servant class. It's showing upper class and, you know, working class, which is a different thing. I mean, I've noticed that we don't – we spend very little time – There's only, the only servant on here is the butler of the Selfridges, and we don't mm-hmm. spend much time with him at all. No, but I mean the the nature of some of those relationships are created with the staff at the store, I think. True. Like, you know, I think of like Mr. Crab as being sort of like the Carson. Yeah. And yeah. uh, you know, uh Mr. Grove is kind of Batesian. Yeah. And uh oh, whatever his his lady friend's name is, she's kind of Mrs. Husey. I don't know. It's hard yeah. to say. No, like there's there's some truth in that. But I mean just the fact that they have more independence, I feel like. I mean, it changes the relationship. Oh yeah, totally. So, yeah. 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 So then we we get a a scene of Mister Selfridge gathering all of the heads of department, right? Who he's already hired. Yes, uh, a full year in advance. Yeah. One of Waring's concerns that he said was that he'd hired all this staff when there's not even a store yet. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But he's he's got his brain trust together. Uh, we might as well run down a little bit. Mr. Crab, who you mentioned, is the chief of finance, mm-hmm. and his name is quite on the nose. It's very Dickensian. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, we have Mr. Grove, who is the chief of staff. He is the ginger. That's right. You were waiting to find out who the ginger was. Now you know. It's that guy. Yes. We've got Miss... Miss Blankensop. <gasps> Miss Blankensop! Yes. Oh, my God. Miss Blankensop. I love that name so much. 
At first, I wanted to change my name <laughs> so that my name was Kelly Blankensop. Uh, right. But then I thought maybe it would be better if I had like a secretary uh, and named her Blankensop. And I'd be like, Blankensop, get me the president. <laughs> like, I don't know how to do that. You're fired, Blankensop. <laughs> ah, I can't stay mad at you, Blankensop. <laughs> Come on in here. <laughs> Yeah, I, I forget what her uh, sort of position or title is, but I do too. But she see, I think she might be his like his like personal secretary. I think you may be right. She's yeah. always just sort of around in those kind of situations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in terms of the other employees, I don't know that either of these are there. But there's Henri Leclerc, who we, we meet at some point, and he is the window dresser, mm-hmm. uh, and he is a mad French genius. He is a mad French genius. He's like Monsieur on Manor House, essentially. He, he very much is, yes. And we're repeatedly told that his window dressing, you know, brings grown men to their knees and mm-hmm. all this sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> and the other uh, supervisor that we're going to meet is Miss Martle. Mm-hmm. She is the head of accessories, and we'll get more into her later. Yes. So uh, all of the heads of department are sent on a year-long sojourn round the globe yes. to bring the finest products to stock at Selfridges. Yeah. Their directive is to find things that people won't even know that they want until they see them, which is pretty novel. Uh, but yeah. as they all leave, the various people who have been hired express some, you know, uh, pretty understandable <laughs> Yeah. Uh, reticence about this, this insanity that they've signed up for. Right. Well, it's very much, you, you, you never, you know, you never know whether you're in on the ground floor of Google or pets.com. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we do find out that the ginger has an invalid wife. Yes. Because he expresses his concern to Mr. Crab. Although he does not outwardly express any concern to the staff. I think it's the, uh, the head waiter. That he's speaking with in his yeah. name, I don't remember. Right. Um, yeah, this is just going to be me being like, I don't remember that person. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. And Tom might look it up. He feels <laughs> like it. Uh, but so, you know, the ginger reassures the head waiter and then the head waiter kind of, you know, shuffles off the buffalo or whatever. Yeah. Is that Mr. Perez? Yes, it is yeah. Mr. Perez because we thought that was really unusual. Yeah. For, because he appears to be British. Right. But I mean, we could be wrong. Yeah. At any rate, uh, then the ginger asks Mr. Crab, he's like, uh, our salaries are guaranteed until the opening of the store, right? Yeah. Because I left a pretty sweet gig. <laughs> yeah. And I've got this invalid wife at home, so yeah. what are you going to do? Yeah. And uh, Mr. Crab, pessimistic. Yeah. I mean, white. you know, he says the right things when he needs to, but especially, you know, when, when he's talking to Mr. Selfridge, he is quite pessimistic about the But you need that. Situation. You know what I mean? Oh, sure. I mean, he, look... Your your chief of finance should always be pessimistic. Yes. Well, and it's interesting because one of the parallels that I kept drawing between Mr. Selfridge or uh, to Mr. Selfridge is Joe Papp, who started the New York uh, Shakespeare Festival. Uh-huh. And they do – they still exist and they do um, the free Shakespeare in the park every year. And, I mean, he was just like this total impresario and, you know, willed this thing into existence. Right. And he had, I can't remember his assistant's name, but like he had that guy. Uh huh. And they were together forever up until kind of like the, the early seventies when he just started making a bunch of like really bad decisions <laughs> yeah. and stopped listening to his pessimistic guy entirely. Cause yeah. you know, I mean, you can kind of work that out and sometimes you're like, oh yeah, you were right or you were right. But mm-hmm. you know, once you're completely like, hey, listen, pessimistic guy, I'm not listening to you at all. Pessimistic guy's like, well, guess what? I'm going to go find some Debbie Downer to hang out with because <laughs> I hate you. Yeah. 
But yeah, this this scene, like many others, is resolved by Mr. Selfridge just being optimistic and stubbornly optimistic. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's pretty much his defining characteristic. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's how he gets things done is by just deciding that they're going to happen yeah. and insisting on it. But I mean, I, I really like the character of Mr. Selfridge. Mm-hmm. I have a couple issues with the way he's being portrayed by Jeremy Piven, mm-hmm. despite my general yeah. stamp of approval on him. But I mean, speaking as someone who's willed several things into existence, <laughs> this podcast not being the least among those things. Yeah. I love the scenes where he, you know, gives these speeches or he's about to give these speeches and you see how he is by himself. Yeah. Which is very dour, very tired. Yeah. And and it's just um it's just refreshing to see that on TV. Yeah. Because I don't think that you get a really good sense of what it takes to be an innovator or to be somebody who's trying to build something different. Mm-hmm. And so for me, you know, I'm kind of like feeling like very personally attached to this show. Right. Because I see a lot of parallels in not just the work that I am trying to do on a number of different projects, but also like <laughs> the methods yeah. uh, that he uses tend to be really similar. So, yeah, you know, it was just, you know, seeing him kind of come off of, you know, some show of confidence that was like for his employees or something and then you know go back by himself and just like deflate Mm -hmm. it just it was just so breathtaking to me yeah i was like yes that's exactly what pain feels like (laughs) yes (laughs) next up uh we see i think selfridge and uh the mustache right at the theater yes oh yes for the uh musical review that must have the highest production values in 1908 because it right. looks slick it is fantastic looking yeah. i i it and it's it's funny because there's all these typewriter keys set up and it's this woman singing about how she now has like this job and this sort of thing uh-huh. and i'm like this is the sexiest commentary on the changing roles of women in edwardian <laughs> england ever <laughs> I hope uh, I hope Ethel's somewhere in the audience. <laughs> Although she'd probably be a bit scandalized. Uh, probably. It's pretty scandalous. It's very scandalous, yeah. I mean, you know, by the standards, but it's... Yes, it's, it's very saucy. It is. And so after the show, uh, the mustache takes Selfridge back to meet the star, Ellen Love. Ellen Love, Who is yes. the biggest celebrity in London, apparently. Yeah, she is... Every, everywhere she goes, she is... The center of attention. Yes. And so they go into her dressing room and she's very, you know, coquettish and Mr. Selfridge is very like flummoxed because she's clearly trying to flirt with him. Right. But it's like he doesn't know how to flirt. And yeah. I liked that. Yeah. Hold that thought and we'll come back to it later. Yes. But he just seemed blindsided, you know, yeah. because he was there for a business right. proposition. And I, you know... It it makes sense. Yeah. Well, I think Ellen Love just assumed that he was there for the same reason everybody else shows up in her dressing including room. Including mustache. Yes. Very much well, including mustache. Well, because he's – like they had clearly kind of had a thing. Right. And she's like, oh, I haven't seen you for a while. And he's like, oh, well, now I'm seeing you. I don't know why I stayed away so long, which is what everybody says when they see somebody they used to bang. Right. Like <laughs> – you're always like, oh, yeah, we used to bang. I could probably bang you right now. Oh, yeah. I saw you naked. That was cool. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Neither of us really have big standards or, uh, you know, expectations for our lives. So. Yeah. But uh, she is continuing her conversation with them from behind the dressing screen 
which I love. I wish we would bring this back. I've been reading this biography of the Madame de Stahl. Mm-hmm. And she used to, you know, she would take all of her morning calls while she was going through her morning toilette. Yeah. And I love that. And I wish it was still a thing. <laughs> yeah. Like, and you know, and it was, and she continued that later in her life, which was like post French revolution, post Napoleon. Like, right. It was no longer the fashion. It was no longer the fashion, but I wish it was still the fashion because I just love, like, to me, it's like the ultimate power play. Uh huh. You know, you're like, oh yeah, I'm like naked, but like, what do you want? <laughs> right. Well, like I'm pooping. Yeah. Okay. Because I mean, that was you well, know they that's... had chamber pots. That was what uh, the king. You know, it used to be this big honor to come in and watch the king take his morning shit. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is a power play. Like Lyndon Johnson was famous for doing that. He when as a power move, he would just have people when he was having a conversation, he'd go to the bathroom and say, "Come follow me," and mm-hmm. go, you know, do his business oh, while I having that a at conversation. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm the Regina George of slumber parties. <laughs> so you've been warned. Yeah. Don't invite me to a slumber party unless you want to get into a burn book situation. <laughs> yeah, but I I just – because it's a power play for her as well. Right, right. Because she's you know tantalizing them even further. Although right. I think her undergarments actually might be more modest than what she was wearing on stage. <laughs> Uh, it's hard right. to say. Although I had a feeling that that was kind of a PBS thing, that the, the sort of, I mean, those were the undergarments at the time. I just feel like if this had not, if they had been able to show more, they would have liked mm, to. Mm-hmm. Mustache guy points out that he can see behind the screen in a, the reflection of a mirror, which Ellen Love is most certainly aware of. I would think. Why do you think she put the screen there? <laughs> right. You ding dong. Yes. This, again, not made perfectly clear. She lives in her dressing room at right. the theater, uh, a la Tipping the Velvet. <laughs> yeah. Uh, also great. You should watch it. Yeah. Um, that's not Edwardian, is it? No, I think it's Victorian. Okay. Yeah. Uh, which uh, Ellen Love would not appreciate being compared to. Right. Uh, at any rate, so she's living there. Again, not made perfectly clear. Yeah. But that is what is going on. In any case, the, the scene ends with Mr. Selfridge saying that she should come to his office because he has a proposition to put to her. And she was she's like, like, oh, what? She's like, I'd love for you to put your proposition to me, Mr. Selfridge. Right. Which, by the way, as far as it seems that the London papers, when they reported on Mr. Selfridge coming, also mentioned that he was the world's greatest lover. Yeah, because, because every, every woman, every single woman <laughs> is just like, take me now. <laughs> yeah. like it's, Here in the public <laughs> right, it's insane. And I mean, it's like, like it's Jeremy Piven. He's not unattractive, but he's but he's not, also not like yeah, you know. He's you know he's charming, but everybody reacts so enthusiastically. Like just because his smile makes the panties drop doesn't mean what's down below will make <laughs> you keep them off. <laughs> At any rate, that's a lot of fun. Ellen Love, yes. uh, who looks a lot like Jenna Louise Coleman, who's the new companion on Doctor Who, and I just keep getting really confused about. <laughs> okay. Uh, but it's not her. It's someone else. All right. Who wh- – what was she on? You looked her up. She was on Torchwood or something? Uh, Yeah. she was, Or was she? I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You all have the internet. Yeah. <laughs> ah, then we get what might have been my favorite scene in the entire episode, mm-hmm. which is – uh, Mr. Selfridge at the breakfast table yes. asking his children and his mother 
for ideas about different departments they should have. You know, his son is like, toys and guns. And he says, great idea. Find me all the best toys and guns in the world and I'll put them in there. And they're like, ice cream, real American ice cream. <laughs> yeah. And it's just amazing. And I love the way that he crowdsources ideas from his family because yeah. that's exactly what I do. Yes. Like, it's really annoying when we go out with friends because I'm always like, okay, would you go to this comedy show? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yep. I want to hear your story. <laughs> but yeah. like, and he's so excited and they're so engaged. Yeah. Like, yeah. they are so excited to help their dad. Mm-hmm. And it is just like totally heartwarming to watch. It's yes. amazing. Because again, the, here's this functional family, mm-hmm. which after Abs- yeah. weeks and weeks of downtown, <laughs> we're like, thank God these they people like all, each yeah. other. Uh, it's very nice. Yes. Yes. It takes. However, the, he then starts reading the paper, and uh, the British press is not being very kind to no, him. No, not at all. Seem. He says it's it's as if they want me to fail, which of, of course everybody wants. Everybody wants everything new to fail. Yeah, even like, in America, like yeah. that's not a British thing. Yeah, everyone hates new ideas. <laughs> yes, they always have. Right. They always will. Apparently, yeah. No, because if he succeeds, then everybody else has to change. If he yeah. fails, then they've then he's proven everybody right. Of course, they want him to. Yes, fail. people despise change. Yeah, but uh, no, because he gets the newspaper and starts reading it, and that's when his mother, who I thought was the governess because of this, is like, "Hey, kids." Maybe now let's go to another room while your dad reads the paper and castigates uh, himself and the British press. Yeah, <laughs> I do wish. That Piven's dialogue was more American sounding. Right. Because well, he'll it, slip into this sort of like, uh, you know. He'll say ain't a bunch. Yeah. I wish that there was a more consistent, because there's like, you know, it's like, oh, you know, such and such is a fellow, like blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, that's, I'm not, I'm sure people did say fellow. Right. In America at the time. But like coming out of Jeremy Piven's mouth, like if the point is that he's this American who's come in mm-hmm. and he's, you know, riling everybody up with his Midwestern ideas. Right. I want him to sound a little more hickish. Yeah, I and agree. And more consistently. I well, and I understand, like, this is, like, we're probably asking for it to be more anachronistic because, you know, probably upper class people had yes. closer vocabularies. I have no idea if that's really true. But it, it would have been, like, they should have. They should have made him, like, just a bit more contemporary sounding. Yeah. Just because the whole point of it is about him clashing with the society. Yeah. And they should, that should be, there should be more of that in his manner of speaking. Yeah, I than agree. There is. Um, yeah, so maybe that'll come through more, but it's just, you know, it's just unfortunate because it's, the, it comes across as very, like, self conscious in his performance, I think. Yeah. And I think he seems more comfortable when he does get to say things like ain't. Yeah. Uh, he says some other stuff too, and I can't remember what it was. Right. But I mean, you know, if, you know, he's, he's this sort of like ruffian. And yeah. I wish they'd let him be a little bit more of a ruffian. Yeah. I mean, obviously he's got to be genteel because he's moving in a lot of different circles. But I mean, you have to be able to adapt to whatever circle you're in. Right, right. Or, you know, highlight your differences in a way that are, that are going to, you know, work to your advantage. Yeah. Uh, as we'll see in this next scene. <laughs> so he needs an investor. Yes. Very much so. 
but they're at a very difficult time. They're in construction Mm -hmm. and they, you know, that's not a great time for somebody (laughs) to want to give you money. They're like, ah, you're doing this without money, but now you want my money. And your other backer pulled out because he thought you were wildly irresponsible. And Mm. in response to that, you doubled your advertising budget. Yeah. uh... Yeah. (laughs) Mr. Crab. So at one, whichever scene it is. An American with money is like a mule with a spinning wheel. No one knows where he got it, and darned if he knows how to use it. <laughs> yeah. No, in, in one of the scenes where Mr. Crab is being pessimistic, and Mr. Selfridge overrides him, and Mr. Crab just kind of backs out of the office, and I just had this feeling that he was just going to keep backing up all the way out of the building into, like, a new <laughs> job. Like, he was just... <laughs> so, uh, Mustache has taken... <laughs> Uh, Mr. Selfridge to visit his friend, Lady Loxley. Yeah. AKA Robin Hood. <laughs> uh, but she's known to all as Lady May. Yeah. As she had been a good time girl. Wink, wink, nudge, yeah. nudge. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> but she's now married to an aristocrat. Yeah. Uh, and she, she does not appear to be concerned in any way with uh, moving on from her past. She, in fact, underlines with every intonation and movement. She's like, hey, I'm sexy and I'm looking to have sex. Sex, 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 sex. Like, it is crazy. Would you like some champagne? <laughs> P.S. Sex. <laughs> right. No, she is. No, I mean, she actually, she seems like she's from a different planet. She does. She's like an alien, but like yeah. a Torchwood alien, <laughs> not a Doctor Who alien. Like right. she wants to bang Owen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like who doesn't? Well, sure. But anyway, yeah, uh, yeah. She and I like this actress, despite the fact yeah. that she's kind of tonally wrong for the show. Yeah, like she's classy. She but- is so like. She gives the most laser-like focused performance. Yeah. And this is actually the one uh, that I did look up that our British cousins may be well aware of this, but she was on Coronation Street for over 700 episodes. That's a lot of episodes. Yeah. I, you know, pr- that's the person that everybody in Britain was presumably going, hey, it's Becky. Yeah. Whereas here in America, we're like, oh, all right. Yeah. <laughs> well played, Torchwood Alien. Well played. <laughs> yes. So he's there, and uh, Lady May's young-ish lover, who I think is named Trevor. I think so. I think his name is Trevor. He yeah. looks a lot like George, the brother of Miss Tower, mm-hmm. uh, except like more Edward Cullen-y. Like he's very <laughs> pale. Yeah. Anyway, apparently that's her young lover that's just always drunk and disorderly. Yeah. Which you know, fine. We've all made mistakes. <laughs> um. So anyway. She hustles him out of the room when he starts to make a scene and then comes back. And so Mr. Selfridge, you know, does a bit of a soft pitch on her investing Mm -hmm. uh, in his store. And she immediately balks and is like, "Uh, whoa, dude, (laughs) y'all need to slow down because I read the newspapers and your name is mud. Like nobody is buying what you're selling Mm -hmm. and you haven't even started selling anything yet. (laughs) Right. So he's understandably kind of disappointed. Yeah. He's a man who's used to his stubborn optimism winning people over. Mm -hmm. And I mean, he does it pretty masterfully. She's just very good at this game. Right. Right. You know, in the game of Selfridges, you buy or you die. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, you know, it doesn't go quite the way that he'd hoped. Right. Uh, So then he winds up going home. Yeah. And And he's he's going through and... 
going through each of his sleeping children's beds and looking at them like, hmm, which one of these will I have to sell? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Are you an accessory or a home furnishing? (laughs) I'm just kidding. He wouldn't sell his children. (laughs) He really wouldn't, actually. Yeah, yeah. He really loves them. Yes. Uh, As we discover when he, he finds that his son is awake... Mm-hmm. Because that day in school, one of the kids said, I, your governor's just a huckster. <laughs> and the kid's like, well, it sounded insulting, so I knocked him down. <laughs> and I'm like, I like that kid. Kid, yeah. you can come live with me. <laughs> I like your moxie. <laughs> uh, and then, like, there's this, like, totally sweet scene yeah. where he tells him, you know, a huckster is someone who buys and sells things. And it's not a bad thing. And mm-hmm. he's glad to be a huckster. Yeah. And, like, it is just, like, so sweet. It was very sweet. Again, so nice to see parents who don't seem to actively hate <laughs> their children. <laughs> <laughs> who aren't constantly plotting ways to get them out of their hair. <laughs> right. Or, like, pack them off to marry someone. Like, yeah. he, you know, is engaged in a relationship with his children. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's also engaged in a relationship with his wife. Yes. With whom he definitely has coitus <laughs> once he gets in there. Cause she fell, right. she fell asleep. She was waiting up for him, uh-huh. which is really sweet. Yeah. And then he's like, let's do it. <laughs> Cause you know, he just was in that place that reeked of sex. Right. <laughs> he was like, seriously, I quote crazy. <laughs> Everybody was doing it. Yeah. But then he goes back to Lady May's. Is that what happens next? Well, this, then I think that he has the scene with his mother. Right. Yeah. So after after the, uh, you know, connubial bliss, it is not enough to get him to sleep for the night. We see him sitting just on the stairway, just clearly no, he's too just, like, stressed rest- out. That was one of my favorite shots. Yeah. Like, just his head against the rails and just... Yeah. Because, I mean, he's been trying everything. Yeah. And nothing is working. And he doesn't have a solution. And, you know, we all know that the series has another eight episodes to run. So the store is going to make it. But there's no reason. Like, it could fail. It Mm -hmm. could easily fail and lose everything. Mm -hmm. You know, As he explains to his mother. Exactly. His his mother comes down and and comforts him. And it's at this point that we learn that she is his mother. Yeah. Um, And... Who he calls... The kids call them Ma and Pa. Yeah. Which is a nice period America touch. Agreed. uh, For the middle class anyway yeah yeah um but in he uh you know talks to her says she says what's the worst that can happen and he says bankruptcy you know my family out on the street all this Mm -hmm. sort of thing and she says well you know you started from nothing you're not going back there you're gonna work it out and all all that sort of thing uh and then (laughs) she talks she says that he reminds her of his father and he will have none of it. I don't think that she says that he reminds well, her. She says that your father would be proud of you. That's what it was, yeah. And then he flips out. Yeah. Because she says that his father was a hero. And I'm curious about which war he was a hero in. Or, right, or if what that's what it was. Or, yeah. Uh, but he's like, yeah, I don't remember him being around at all. It was always you and me. Yeah. Which explains their close relationship. Mm-hmm. Which is also... A really refreshing relationship in this year of our Lord 2013 when, <laughs> yeah. like, every show has to have an incestuous mother-son relationship, apparently. <laughs> um, looking at you, Bates Motel. <laughs> but um, it's just... We're not actually looking at you. We're not. We don't want to. <laughs> we love Vera Farmiga, but there's way better places to see her. Yeah. I need to see that Higher Ground movie. 
<laughs> anyway, so it again, just the family dynamic with the Selfridge family is phenomenal. Yeah. It's really well executed. There is conflict there. Yeah. But it's very clear that these are not like relationship ending conflicts. Yeah. Um, well, and I'm interested in hearing more about this whole thing with his father. Yeah, like that. me too. I am very intrigued. Yeah. See, that was one where it was – they gave us the proper amount to understand but still leave us with more to discover. Yes. So that was good. Indeedy. So we think that at this point they go back to Lady May's. Or he goes by himself, I think. Or does he? Uh, no, she comes She comes to his office. Does she? Well, because he said he had the proposition to put to her. No, no, no. Lady May. Oh, oh, oh. Not yeah. Ellen Love. Yeah, sorry. Women are different from each other, Tom. Do we all look the same to you? No. I'm going to punch you so <laughs> hard when we're done with this podcast. As long as it's when we're done. So he goes back to Lady May's. Right, because that's when Monsieur Leclerc is yeah, introduced. Yeah, okay, okay. He goes back to see Lady May, and he's brought out the big guns. Henri Leclerc, his, you know, dressing, uh, window dressing wizard. Yes. Uh, he takes him in to see her. She offers him champagne. We learn that Mr. Selfridge doesn't drink. Yeah, which was very interesting. Which is perhaps a business practice I should adopt. <laughs> Could be. Uh, also a power play. I mean, you know, there are yeah. other benefits to not when you're connecting business, but at the same time. Yeah, but it does. Like, because you can see Lady May. She's unsettled. Yeah. By the fact that he doesn't drink. And, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, they kind of get to talking and he explains what uh, Monsieur Leclerc does. And Mr. Leclerc actually speaks for himself and he says, you know, that. Uh, he, he paints. A, I paint a picture. Yes, and, uh, and you know it is uh, maybe by the seaside, and uh, you know he says, you know, maybe there will be a window where there's a man and a woman going for a drive, and she's saying, "Oh, you would put a car in the window of your store," and he said, "Why not?" Yeah, and she asks, "Who's driving?" And he says, "That is a good question." Mm-hmm. So she's clearly intrigued. Yeah. So she tells Mister Selfridge that on Friday he is to join her for a shooting party in the country. Yes. And uh, we get to the shooting party, which Mister Selfridge is not a fan of. Uh, yes. Uh, however, ISIS. <laughs> yes. Or what looks like ISIS is yes. in attendance, and we- I was more excited than I have communicated at this particular moment. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, the shooting party is fun. He's a very, he's actually somewhat of a, uh, not as bad, but the, uh, the Michael Gambon character in Gosford Park. Just like dour and at this shooting party and just like shooting grumpily. And, and I can't remember what his name is. I want to call him Merkin. <laughs> can we just call him Merkin? Uh, we can. Great. It's our podcast. His name's Merkin. All right. So Merkin's firing away, <laughs> and every time he uh, cracks open his shotgun and the used shells pop out, they bounce off of Mr. Selfridge's yeah. chest. <laughs> I didn't even see that. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. No, and he just like keeps flinching every time a shot <laughs> right. goes off. He's, He's just – yeah. it's like a Bugs Bunny cartoon. It's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. But he does succeed in uh, convincing Merkin to back his play. Yeah. And well, I guess- And Merkin just – he says that I, I – choose my investments like i choose my horses you know i look them right in the eye and then if they don't work out i kill them yeah you know so and he has a gun so (laughs) right do it 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 is actually he does seem to be threatening to shoot mr selfridge just the investment well and because that's what he said to his wife before they got down to doing it Mm -hmm. uh the previous the night before he went to go see Lady may again but he was like oh you know i think i found somebody maybe who can invest but it might be dangerous 
Referring, I assume, to Lady May and her constant need to be banging. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> But, you know, also, you know, I don't know who her friends are or, like, how that works. Yeah, yeah. Oh, one thing that Lady May said that I found fascinating, because she is married to Lord Loxley, but he spends right. most of his time in the country, apparently. And she says, uh, there's so many ways to run a marriage, and never seeing each other is by far my favorite or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just Mr. Selfridge is like, what? Right. Do what? Yeah. He's very flummoxed by the idea of a, you know, non-cohabitation with his spouse. Right. No, it, and it's throughout the episode, it's interesting that the Americans are the conservative ones and the British are the sort of wildly libertine ones. It isn't, but I mean, by, but it is know. consistent. Right. Because the Americans, even more so than a Downton Abbey, would have still been in the throes of Victorianism in 1908. Yeah. It would have taken that long for both the Parisian and the British influence to get to where they were mm-hmm. in uh, Michigan. Yeah. So... Well, Chicago by this point. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. Chicago. Well, you know, you got the dailies running things. What are you going to do? <laughs> um, so, uh, but it is fun to see. It is fun to see the Americans being presented as being conservative. And right. not really actually having a value judgment placed on yeah, either one. Yeah, it's not like, like a it's, it's uptight a, sort of thing. It's always a character choice. It's yeah. just that like they personally can't understand why somebody would conduct themselves in that way. Right, right. Yeah, but it's hard to tell at this point exactly what Lady May's game is. Yeah, I have written down that she's Lady May, finest smirk in London. <laughs> because she's always smirking. Like she Maybe has we this... should call her smirkin'. <laughs> smirkin' and murkin'. <laughs> it's not bad. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I have a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so I've heard. Yeah. Uh, so then I think this is, now we get to the, uh, they're, they're hiring the staff for, uh, Selfridges. I, we, I think we had a montage at some point in here. Yeah. Which uh, I was actually really relieved yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it was like them, like, you know, getting the office ready and things like that. Cause yeah, like, it was and like, the God, building going up and, yeah, so yeah. much had happened. Right. And I was like, thank you. I really needed this palate cleansing montage. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so we see the hordes of applicants lining up to get a position at Selfridges. Uh, they've got, they've got their pick, uh, and they can be extremely exacting in how they do it. Every man, uh, as they're lining up for the interview, each man is being stood against a wall, and if they're over a certain line, they're out. Uh-huh. No interview or nothing. Yeah. Mr. Um, Carson would approve. Yeah. <laughs> Yep. No, and I'll tell you, that Ginger is a company man. He, he is. He is very, very dedicated to Mr. Selfridge. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and he's, uh, and you know, they're t- all the interviewees are being told, you know, have your references out and ready. No reference, no interview. It is discussed that, it, this isn't announced, but somebody says they are aware that if they get married, they'll have to leave. Yeah. Yeah. Which was very confusing to me because I assumed, you know, this was all setting up for Miss Towler to come in for an interview. And I was like, right. but isn't she already married? Right. I was like, how is she going to come work at the store? Exactly. Because we all know at this point that she's going to. We right. wouldn't have seen this character that way. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Fun fact. The Google hiring process, exactly the same. <laughs> <laughs> you're over 6'2", you're out. <laughs> you know, everybody that I've ever seen that worked for Google seemed to be under six feet. So. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Intriguing. Yeah. It's how they keep their overhead low. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wordplay. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, so, uh, but Miss Fowler is not in this horde of interviewers. Uh, but we do see her. She's just she's sort of basically working as a scullery. Yeah, she's like scrubbing a floor. Yeah, she's uh, she's at least found something but that isn't prostitution, but she's down on her luck. Without those references, yes. And we may not even have mentioned that when she got fired. Just as she was leaving, she was handed a box that Mr. Selfridge had bought some gloves for, some nice red gloves. It was it was the gloves that she had chosen. Yes. He bought them for her and gave a box – delivered had the box of the gloves delivered to her and his card. Yes. Uh, so uh, Miss Towler sees her opportunity now mm-hmm. uh, and she goes to his house. Because that's the address on the card. That's the address on the card, yes. And the butler – uh, Physic. What? Uh, I'm just trying to remember his name. Fizzy lifting drink. <laughs> I don't believe that is Fezzik. correct. No. Uh, Fortunato. Fraser. I knew it was an F. You were right. And a Z. <laughs> uh, Fraser, the butler, is of course uh, not amused by her Nor showing up. Nor is his brother Niles. <laughs> Man, that's going to be great when he shows up. I know, man. It's really going to be a lot more fun. Um, <laughs> uh, yes, she says that she wants a job, and he's like, you're aware that this is his personal residence. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she shows him the car, and he's like, fine, I will see if Mr. Selfridge is at home. Yeah. Which I always, that's, you know, a standard butler thing. I, but I always love that. I always do, too. Yeah. Well, because, I mean, you know, that's short for at home to receive guests. Yes, yes. Uh Boom! You just got served, <laughs> Miss Towler. Right. Uh, but in fact, he comes right out. Boom. And he uh, he doesn't remember her at first, but she reminds him. And he's like, oh, yeah. And she, and she plays it well because she lets him sort of get out of her that she lost her job because of him. Mm-hmm. Like she doesn't like come out and say that right away. She lets him sort of learn that and accept – because he does kind of have – an obligation to give her a shot because he did get her fired and that he wasn't did get her fired. he wasn't intending to do that no uh but she doesn't demand it of him she lets him realize that he has that responsibility she is a really interesting character because i don't understand how much agency she has right i don't understand how savvy she is yeah yeah she seems kind of stupid she no you're right because that's the thing like she lets him do that but it's also because she's embarrassed right and she seems just kind of slow on the uptake. Yeah. In a lot of ways. Yeah. And like, but at the same time, you know, like, she's smart enough to do this. Right. You know, I don't know. I guess maybe it kind of remains to be seen. Yeah. But the upshot is, he says, show up 9 a.m. sharp, report to the chief of staff. And he's making it clear that, you know, you're getting an easy entrance, but it's not, you know, once you're on the job, you've got to yes, do the well, job. Yes. Well, because she says that she thinks she'd like to work for him. Mm-hmm. And he's like, uh, yeah, we've never worked for me before. Like, <laughs> Boom. <laughs> yeah. So she shows up in the uh, sort of brutal interviewing process that's going on. It's pretty harsh, man. Yeah. I mean, and and props to all of the background artists. Yeah. Because they do an excellent job of just kind of communicating both the tremendous opportunity, but also the tremendous amount of pressure they're yeah. under. Yeah, yeah. Um, she has a brief moment as she's waiting at the head of the line uh, with a guy who we're clearly going to get to know better. Yes. Uh, then sits down for the interview with... The aforementioned Miss M- Mallard? No, Matley? <laughs> we really had trouble with the names on this show. Matlock? 
Martle. Martle. No, oh, no wonder. Yeah. What a horrible name. Yeah, and she's kind of a Martle to uh-huh. look at her. Um, <laughs> but she, you know, she's like references. That sounds like you're trying to say Myrtle, but you burped at the beginning. <laughs> right. And Miss Towler, of course, doesn't have references. That's her whole problem. And Miss Martle is like, okay, get out. Mm-hmm. Um, but she says, oh, Mr. Selfridge said that I should see the chief of staff. Uh, and she goes and sees who is the ginger. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she seems like, oh, yeah, I have a note about her. And she comes back. She's like, so I guess you're going to be senior ex- assistant. Se- senior assistant of accessories. And she's like, oh, great. She's like, and I'm the manager of accessories. So I'll be keeping an eye on you. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, she's clearly not happy. I mean, as who would be about somebody getting a special pass mm-hmm. through this rigorous process. Right. Um, and I also wonder, like, does Miss Martle assume that this is due to a sexual relationship? Because you would, like... Well, considering that everyone on this show seems to assume that everything is or was a result of a sexual relationship, yeah. uh, probably? Well, and I mean, even in normal life, when the head of the company is like, please give this young, attractive woman a job with no questions asked. <laughs> yeah, you that's know. true. But yeah, she gets the job and she goes off happily without having been told when or where she should next report. I just mm-hmm. found that odd. I was like, so what does she do now? Like, eh, you, know. you know. But of course that works itself out. Uh, and we're getting on pretty much right up to uh, opening sort of week. Yes. At this point, everybody's getting things together. Um, Mr. Selfridge is giving various pep talks. He gives a bunch of them to the staff. And yes. They're all fairly enjoyable, but... There's not much to say about them. No. He just keeps pepping them up. He's uh, the P.T. Barnum of the department store racket. That's yeah. for sure. And and it the morale seems good. Everybody seems... Well, everybody is... Ex- because this is the thing. Like, in order to have a successful business, you really have to get the staff on board with you. Right. You really have to get them to believe in whatever it is that, that you're selling. Right. And and he clearly seems to have done that, mm-hmm. both in the original meeting with the heads of department and in this meeting with the full staff. Everybody really seems to be on board. It's kind of interesting because, you know, there's this – the general public is so skeptical and all this mm-hmm. sort of thing. But, you know, he – the people that he's found to work for him are really invested in it. Yeah. I mean, that's what you need. You need people who are willing to make an investment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a lot of big dramatic tracking shots of the beautiful Selfridges yes. store and a lot of people gazing around at it's it. It's really fun to see the employees get to go in for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's just really cool. Yeah. But then, of course, Miss Marvel is like, hey, we're not paying you to gaze in awe and wonder. Mm-hmm. Get over here. And I don't know if it's at this point, but uh, the co-workers of Miss Towler. Ugh, these bitches. Uh, who are named... Kitty. And Doris. Ugh. And they are, they're somehow the Waldorf and Statler of the accessories department. <laughs> uh, but they're just very like... Little, they're very catty. They're very catty. Yes. That seems to be their whole thing. Yeah. Is just... Uh, Kitty's a ginger, but you know what? She's not a good ginger. Yeah. We're not going to give her the She's credit. not what I... You know, I wouldn't be surprised if she's a die job ginger. So <laughs> even at this early date. <laughs> oh, but now finally. Yes. Miss Love comes to see Mr. Selfridge at the store, and mm-hmm. oh my god. Everybody flips out. Every single person flips out. One yeah. of the other accessories girls apparently just carries around a picture of her. Apparently. And gets her autograph on it. Yeah. And she's very gracious. And yeah. She's, this she's is very clearly, self-assured. 
she gets this reaction wherever she goes. She yes. knows how to handle it. Yeah. And I, I was very struck in this scene because I suddenly realized that on Downton Abbey, nobody has ever been impressed by anybody else. That's true. Ever. At any point. Yeah. Like, even the people that they care about, like, when it's the Bishop of York or whatever, yeah. nobody's ever impressed. No. Yeah. And having worked at a place where we have celebrities at the office relatively frequently, mm-hmm. uh, this is exactly what it's like to have celebrities <laughs> at the office. Yeah. Everybody loses their shit. Yeah. Just completely loses it. And... I thought it was interesting because, you know, her review is like so saucy. Right. But all of the women seemed more excited to see her than the men mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Yeah. Which I mean, you know, she is, uh, you know, she's living the dream in a lot of ways. Yeah. It's you know. true. Yeah. Uh, so they get in the elevator. I loved this scene. Yes. Uh, because, oh, because Mr. Selfridge has brought in these women to be the elevator operators. They're very pretty and, you know, they've learned yeah. their lines, what to say every floor. So, uh, the elevator operator doesn't say anything, but Miss Love is like, I know you. And mm-hmm. she's like, yeah, my name is Mabel. I was in the chorus. No. She says, we were in the chorus of some, such and such right. together. And she says, oh, Mabel. Yeah. Ellen remembers her name. Yeah. Which is awesome. Yeah. No. And, you know, they're just like both happy for each other. Yeah. And, you know, the elevator operator is like, oh, I'm not giving it up though. And Ellen's like, yeah, don't ever give up. Yeah. And like, you know, Miss Taller's just in the background like, ah! <laughs> right. This is so cool. <laughs> yeah. So she ushers Ellen Love into Mr. Selfridge's office. And there's this is great because he, you know, asks her in and then sits down behind his desk and she says, oh, no chairs. And he says, well, I don't like people hanging around. See, and that's exactly the tone that I wish he had yeah. all the time because yeah. that is very attractive to people. Yeah. Particularly in a foreign country. Yeah. Well, and his delivery on that one is great too because it's, it's, it's like confident but a little bit self-effacing. He's like, I, you know, I, I don't know how to describe it, but I just uh, really like the way he, he was it's selling that. It's Piven-esque. So she is Ellen Love-esque and is like, oh, I'll just sit suggestively on the desk next to you. Mm-hmm. And he stands up and puts the desk between them uh-huh. and clarifies that, no, he really does have a business proposition. Yeah, it re- a business. <laughs> right. Not like the oldest business. <laughs> right. This current business that I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> He wants her to be the, the, the face and the spirit of Selfridges. Yes. He wants her face and her figure to be, you know, the embodiment of Selfridges and to be their, their mascot, mm-hmm. essentially. He wants her to be their Gibson girl. Yeah, exactly. And she, uh, she agrees. You know, there's properly not grubby numerical discussion about yes. compensation. Mm-hmm. But because I was watching it too and she didn't get right into it, I was like, this is she is a businesswoman. There's no way she's not making sure she gets paid out oh, of this, yeah. you know. But uh yeah, she's she's on board and she is the new spirit of selfridges. Yeah, and it's like in this scene I got very concerned because I don't want Mr. Selfridge to sleep with her. I know. And it's weird because normally on TV I want everyone to commit adultery it's that's true interesting yeah but in this case his relationship with his wife to me is much more interesting than mm-hmm. any other relationship that he could have yeah you know because his wife is clearly a very intelligent savvy woman mm-hmm. and also i just i don't understand his reactions to miss love i find her very kind of confusing like mm-hmm. I, I just i don't get his reactions to her. Right. It's not, and I don't, I, don't, get I get her. Wants. I, well, I, 
I don't know why she wants to, me, to sleep with him when she's getting no positive feedback. Well, I think her thing about it was, to me, the way I read that whole thing is that she just can't believe that her Ellen Love act isn't working to an extent. That she's just like, come on, I'm giving you the full love here. What? <laughs> What more does it take? What's wrong with you? Yeah. And she just like, that's, that's sort of the thing that keeps her going. Okay. That makes a certain amount of sense. Yeah. Yeah. And it's weird because like on this show, I feel like people have difficulty expressing emotion in the same way that they have difficulty in Downton Abbey, but they're much clumsier on this show. Yeah. Like everything on Downton Abbey is so fluid. Yeah. And I mean, and that's, I think in part of being part of the aristocracy officially, and I mean, and I think you see it in Lady May. Yeah. You know, this yeah. facility with glossing over awkwardness. Yeah. Very, very deftly. Whereas most of the people here are, you know, professionals. Right. They have a profession. Yeah. And when they're put in kind of awkward situations that are a little bit outside of their frame of reference, they get very confused. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's again, refreshing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so now we are reintroduced to the uh, guy. <laughs> that Miss Towler had a brief moment with in line. He has also been hired, and he is a waiter at the fancy restaurant. It's like the Palm Court at the Palms, I think. Something like Palms that. Palms at the Court. <laughs> palm d'Or. Right. I don't know. There's definitely Palms involved, yes. unless we're wrong. Uh, so he is he is a waiter there, and he invites Miss Towler in to see the place after hours. He's very like, come on, you know, you only live once, this is, you know. <laughs> Great opportunity to see this place, whatever. Yeah. Um, and so he, she, you know, because she doesn't want to, but he talks her into it. He says that someday he is going to own a restaurant like this, and she is, you know, sort of baffled by by such dreams. Uh-huh. And he tells her that there's nothing wrong with being ambitious, uh, and that she should. And then I think she does say that she, her dream, if she could think of one, would be to maybe be one of the buyers. Or he suggests that to her. One yeah, or the other. she says she wants to learn more about window dressing. Ah, uh, right. Because I think we glossed over the scene where Monsieur Leclerc is having difficulty with one of his windows, and he wants a suggestion from the ladies for something right. that one of the women in this garden scene that he's setting up could be looking at. Mm-hmm. And the uh, head, Miss Martle, member of it. Miss Martle. Miss Mumble. Yeah. Miss <laughs> Mumble tells him, you know, oh, so you want me to do your job for you? Right. Which is like so bitchy. Yeah. But uh, Miss Towler, who's just a bit of an odd duck in general. Right. I think she might be mildly autistic. <laughs> uh, but she immediately latches. Like she sees, it's very clear that she sees his vision. Right. And she brings him a red silk flower. Yeah. And says that, you know, she's been given it maybe as a token of love. And he likes this. Yeah. And he wonders, though, about the, the color. And she says, oh, it'll stand out against the green. Yeah. He's like, aha. This yeah. mousy young thing might have a future in window dressing. <laughs> um, so she admits as much to the waiter who has a name, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, we could just call him waiter. We could just call him Let's waiter. Let's just call him yeah, waiter. Yeah, we'll go with that. He's not important enough yeah. right now yeah. to have a name. <laughs> the waiter Joe. Yeah, um, but he – I like that scene because he serves her – He dem- he demonstrates his skill. Yeah. Which is very important to him, I think. Because mm-hmm. uh, there's obviously a little bit of a thing between them, which, again, I'm very confused. Because at this point, I still think she's married exactly. to that guy. Yes. I'm like, uh, 
<laughs> okay. Anyway, so eventually she's like, I have to go. Somebody's waiting for me. Right. So they go downstairs, and I think he's like, you know, got her at the elbow or something like that. Mm-hmm. And George is there and then flips out and starts like trying to wail on him, which is like, you know, ridiculous because he's got all of the upper body strength of a wet noodle. Oh, right. Uh, so he's like, get your hands off her again, leading credence to the whole marriage thing. But then I think in this scene, we find out that it's her brother, George. And I'm like, what a douche. Yeah. Like, who is this guy? Yeah. Um, but as it turns out, I mean, I think what, who this guy is, I believe we're meant to understand from what follows is, uh, just, he's slow. He's a little bit slow. Yes. Um, you know, not, not a lot, but enough to be. Uh, difficult to hire. Yes. At this point. Yeah. And somewhat difficult to live with, as yes. we have learned. And work with, apparently. <laughs> yeah. So then we see Monsieur Leclerc. Leclerc. Who, by the way, is a hottie boom body. Yes. Like, we this is that clearly clear the eye candy for the ladies and gay men yeah. who make up the core of Masterpiece, masterpiece Classic <laughs> audience. Yeah. Uh, this is your guy. He's... You know, no offense to you straight men, but, right. you know, this is our house. None taken. Aw, thanks, babe. <laughs> You're an honorary woman. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but yes, Monsieur is, it's it's at night, and he's in one of the windows. Burning make, the midnight oil. Yeah, and a cigarette. Yes. Uh, he's smoking as he uh, makes some little adjustments to things. He, he climbs up to m- change something near the roof, and the sprinklers go off. Did the sprinkler go off because his cigarette was near it? or was That was my understanding. Oh, because of... my understanding was that he tripped something by putting the flower up there. Oh, but that okay. actually makes a lot more yeah. sense. Yeah. Um, so that's what it was. The sprinklers. And the sprinklers apparently went off in all the windows. Yeah. Which is, by the way, if you've seen this in movies such as The Matrix where people pull stuff like this, that's not how sprinkler systems work. Just the sprinklers that are actually detecting the smoke go off. Otherwise, the water system wouldn't be able to handle it. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of bullshit about sprinkler systems out there. (laughs) Just want to clarify that. The more you know (laughs) about sprinkler systems. Right. Uh, But in this case, it's all the windows that went off. And it's somewhat more uh, believable in this case because this is one of the very first sprinkler systems, automated sprinkler Mm -hmm. systems ever installed. I, I, I checked, by the way, the smoke detector, if you're wondering, the first one was invented in 1902 in Birmingham. I see. So the, you know, the technology Britain was there. or Alabama? Uh, uh, in Britain. Okay. Yeah. So Sorry, you, Alabama. <laughs> right. Was trying to give you an alley-oop there. Yeah. So we see the aftermath. Uh, Mr. Selfridge has gathered. They're all, uh, you know, concerned because apparently they open the next day mm-hmm. and all the windows have just been destroyed. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Crab is very upset because the insurance company is saying that they're not going to cover it because the sprinkler system is new and untested and they can't be responsible mm-hmm. for it. Which, shouldn't they have known that before they sold them the policy? Well, yes. But, I mean, but this is how insurance is. Yeah. Once you submit the claim, then they're going to find the reason. Yeah. You know, so. He asks, Monsieur, is there any way to get these restored by tomorrow? He says, Impossible. But we have done the impossible before. And then yeah. he goes on. It's like, all right. He's so French. Yeah. And Mr. Selvage is like, all right, you, you know, you do that. And you, Mr. Crab, go be on the, f- get on the phone with the insurance company and do your job, which was nice. I just love how, like, brusque he is, I guess. Like, he's very right. direct. But everybody, like, more or less responds well to that. And yeah. I just wish more people were like that. <laughs> Well, because right. it's hard. He's yeah. taking responsibility for everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 
Anyway, look, this is turning right. into therapy. <laughs> yeah. I'm just saying, people, when somebody gives you a direction, don't be a freaking baby about it. Just do your job. Right. In any case, he also gives one of his pep talks to the staff, says, we may be here all night, but we're going to get this done, by golly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it cuts to, they're not actually there all night. This seems to be like maybe seven or eight or something like that, mm-hmm. like evening times. Uh, and he's going around to all the people saying, all set for tomorrow, miss, what's your name? <laughs> yes, sir. All set for tomorrow, whoever. And, uh, you know, so everything, everybody seems to be all set. Yes. One of the, I think one of the caddy accessories ladies is like, uh, I think so, Mr. Selfridge. And she's, and he's like, do you think so? Or are you sure? And she's yeah. like, oh, yes, I'm sure. Yeah. You know, um, so he's, things are getting ready. And so they, they all do get to leave. I think, is this the point where the, he, she sees the canoodling or is that later? I don't know. I don't even remember. Right. Like, I think it might be the second one. Okay. Or maybe it's not. No, I think. Okay. At some point here, Miss Towler sees the ginger and Miss Mumble, like, holding hands. Holding hands. In an elevator or something. Yeah. I think it was an elevator. the underground. The shot was very weird on that one. It was like, you know, Branson and Sybil's escape from Ireland bad. Yeah, it was. But in any case, Mr. Grove and Miss Mumble seem to be canoodling. Yes. And and they see... Miss Towler seeing them canoodling and he looks like super pissed. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, you were the one canoodling where you could be seen. Yeah. Like this is, this is Edwardian England. Canoodling is everybody's business. Right. Nobody's just going to be like, oh, it's not my business. Who does what? Exactly. It's, it is your business. There's a shot in, uh, Mr. Selfridge's office where I just, he's got all of these like, you know, inspirational, mm. you know, sayings up. It's yeah. like going into one of those uh, Franklin Covey stores <laughs> yeah. before that was a thing, which I love because I do that also. Yeah, yeah. But uh, my favorite one was one that says there's no fun like work, which I'm considering <laughs> putting up at my desk at work because that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I mean, just everywhere, just just all these sort of like aphorisms to like help him get through his day. Right, right. Sometimes you need a vision board. God damn it. <laughs> But yeah, I think we're pretty much at the uh, the opening, and which, as promised, has been this huge sort of spectacle. Yes. Uh, which, you know, that's what I would say to the papers of London. Like, never underestimate the common man's desire to look at shit. <laughs> right. They don't buy the way that, you know, Mr. Crab certainly hopes that they will. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they're definitely, they've definitely made a stir. Also making a stir is Miss Love, who is there, <laughs> and meets... Rose Selfridge for the first time. Mm. And uh, I guess Rose didn't really realize how beautiful she was or like who she was or something. But she gets her first gander of her. Right. Oh, and well, because she's very familiar, she says, oh, I'm sure Harry's told you all about me. Yeah. And Rose is like, no, (laughs) sure didn't. Really, Uh, your name has not even come up. It is markedly suspicious yeah although to be fair she hasn't been seeing much of mr selfridge at all lately because he's you know he's burning the midnight oil to get this store up so uh anyway but she (laughs) has this great look because mustache comes back (laughs) and says hi to miss love and she turns on the love charm right and i want a gift so hard of rose selfridge's face (laughs) watching that because it's amazing she's like this bitch (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) Um, yeah, and I think that's, you know, they, they have the opening, 
after they're done, Mr. Crab is like, uh, yeah, we didn't make any money, bitch. And Mr. <laughs> right. Selfridge is like, I know, idiot. It's a long-term plan. <laughs> uh, but he leaves and Miss Teller's outside admiring one of the windows. And mm-hmm. they kind of just share a moment and, and, you know, then they both take off for the evening. Yeah. Uh, and that's the end of the first you know, the chunk first, of it. Yeah, the first actual episode. Yes. You know, in Britain, roll credits. In America, onward. Mr. Selfridge is getting shaved. <laughs> yes, he is. Yeah, and then I think this is sort of just him walking around doing stuff. Is is uh, is this where he talks about? Because it's the morning, right, of the next day, and he's like, "There, you know, there's nobody, there's no customers here. We should right, be swarming right. with people." Yeah. It's like, okay, we'll have special deals, early birds only, nine to noon. We'll have you know special deals uh-huh. for early shoppers, and and saying all these things. And I at one point he goes to the. Uh, uh, sport, sports department where there's cricket bats lined up and he's like who's the best cricketer in the world and he says oh jack hobbs sir uh-huh. he's like great we'll get him involved yeah and he's like oh wonderful sir yeah no and i mean mr crab is not having any of it he's like p.s <laughs> dude we have to make some money yeah and he's like yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> these are all plans to make money yes Come on. and at some point in here also miss taller comes to Mr. Grove and is like, uh, could I see you privately at some point? And he's and, like, uh, yes. yes. Yes, you may. Excuse me, I, I wish to blackmail you, Mr. Grove. <laughs> Might I have a moment to do so? So, and also what I realize is like, he's essentially like the ginger version of Gregson, Edith's beau. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, because he's like got this invalid wife and, you know, can't divorce her. Right. And blah, blah, blah. It's not clear what her invalidness is. <laughs> right. Uh, but we do get an indication later that, you know, she's aware, you know, she's not mad or anything. Uh-huh. She's just, you know, sick or paralyzed or something. Right. Um, but this second episode feels really sinister to me. Yeah. Like the tone seemed very different. Yeah. There's a lot of, lot of, a lot of things that are. There's a lot of lingering stares. Yeah. A lot of things. I have this written down. I don't know what scene this was, but it could have been written for almost any of them that I just said, why was that so ominous? Yeah. Like that's, it's throughout the thing. It's just like. No, I'm like, aren't we just still working in a retail store? Like, <laughs> right. God. Yeah. This isn't, you know, Mad Men, except <laughs> that it kind of is. Yeah. That tonally, at least in the second episode, it's very Mad Men. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's not as well written and it's not as well executed, sure. but it's still got this, like, you know, hey, we're in a glamorous situation and hey, you know, whatever. Right. right. Yeah. You know, Peggy. <laughs> <laughs> Have a seat. <laughs> yeah. So, Miss Teller. Successfully blackmails Mr. But Grove. Is she intentionally blackmailing him? It's so unclear to me. It's, I mean, I feel like. It has to be yes. Yeah, um, that's you true. know, and and he talks about things about how you know discretion is very important in our business and all this sort of thing. I mean, they they hint around it broadly. Yeah, but she says that she's got a brother that needs a job, and that he's not suited for anything skilled, but he's a hard worker and willing. Yeah, and this sort of thing, and he's finally like, all right, I, maybe I can see something about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but. And then, and, and as she leaves, he's like, oh, and this tower, I hope you don't have any brother, any other brothers looking for a place. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, well, she laughs at that. Yeah. Because her first reaction is like, oh, haha, I don't have, and then she's like, oh, I see. Like, like, cause. He, he wants to know that the blackmail is done. Right, exactly. That, you know, she's done blackmailing. Yeah, like, he's willing to go this far she's and then. She's blown her blackmailing wad. <laughs> right. 
And I mean, that was all she, you know, she didn't have any other intentions. So, because again, she's, that, that is what's weird about her is she does all these savvy things without ever appearing to actually be That's savvy. my point. Yeah. That was what I was trying to say yeah, earlier. You're like, right. she seems so dumb, but she does all these things that seem smart. Right. Yeah. Except for the really dumb thing she does in this episode. Well. Uh, which is the most upsetting thing. Yes. <sighs> anyway. My next note here is just Francis O'Connor in all caps. <laughs> because I was very excited about Francis O'Connor in this episode. Right. Well, because she uh, was on her way out, but Lady May has come to stick her sexy nose <laughs> all up in her business. Right. Or wait, no. I skipped ahead. Did I skip ahead? Does it matter? We do, you know, we're going to talk about the scenes in the order that we remember them. Yeah, which so. is much fuzzier for the second half for some reason. Yeah, oddly. At any rate, so she goes to see Frances O'Connor and she basically is like, uh, by the way, your husband's totally going to be banging Alan Love. And she's like, what are you saying? And yeah. she's like, your husband is going to <laughs> bang Alan Love. She's like, come again <laughs> no actually uh both rose and uh her mother-in-law who she enlists she's like i do not want to be in the same room as this woman because i think she's going to eat my soul <laughs> uh but you know she's like oh have you been seeing your husband very much recently and she's like no but he did just kind of open this giant <laughs> door right. i think you that's kind of taking up a lot of his time when people have real jobs lady may (laughs) (laughs) anyway so she's just like oh you know watch yourself and rose is like great i'm going to the national gallery yes uh lady may is absolutely flummoxed by this yes she says you don't want to go on one of the public days there's all sorts of people in there yeah and i think she says riffraff oh you're right i think she does and not only that but rose is planning to take the underground yes which Lady May basically needs her smelling salts. Right. She cannot believe it. And I mean, it really, you know, we see her, and I really like this part, yes. as she she does take the underground, and she is, you know, in this mass of people that uh-huh. she doesn't really fit in, and she is a bit uncomfortable there, but, you know, but she does it, because, no. you know, democracy. No, man. it's it's really great, actually. I yeah. liked it as somebody who moved somewhere that had a public transit system uh-huh. from a place that really didn't have a public transit system. Yeah. And, and that's just how you feel, like, the first, like, month or so. You're like, ah! Where's my stop? Who are you? Yeah. Well, especially, you know, before smartphones, like, you go the wrong way, you might never return. Like, yeah. you don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> like, well, I like Yorkshire, actually. <laughs> how about that? Hey, they've got a ripping up here, too. <laughs> time for a ripping good time. <laughs> yes, and we also, boy, another odd scene. I mean, that gets developed through the whole episode, but, uh, Mr. Perez, the head waiter, yeah. pulls Waiter Joe aside and is like, uh, listen, there's a lot of, uh, women that come here. Not just young, attractive ones, but uh, old and fat ones, unappreciated ones, all these sorts of things. And you're here to make them happy. And keep coming back. Yes. Wink, wink. Happy. Sex motions. Like, I mean, it's, (laughs) you know, it's like, you know. He's like, I picked this one up from Lady May. (laughs) Right. So he's basically saying, you understand that you are a whore now. 
is what he's telling this and waiter. the guy is basically kind of like Rose when Lady May was telling her about Ellen Love. He was like, what? No. Right. He's like, he was like, you are, no, I'm not. This is silly. It's 1908. Right. Maybe that's how it was back in the 1890s, but not anymore. Yeah. Anyway, but he agrees that he will try to keep the female customers happy. Yes. There's also a scene where Miss Love, oh dear, because Miss Love wanted her photographs redone. Yes. She had her photographs taken for being the spirit of Selfridge by Monsieur Leclerc. Mm-hmm. And she says that they look positively Victorian. Yeah. And again, basically just a power move to see where Selfridge's loyalties are going to lie here. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he he chooses Ellen Love over Monsieur. Very quickly. Yeah. Who is not happy about it. Um, I, I will say, hey, Ellen Love, could you just have been a little more specific with your criticisms there? Right? Like, come on, just a bit. Like, what What would you like? Exactly. Never criticize with that offering of solutions. See? But, uh, yeah. but That's not part of the Ellen Love package, man. Right. But Mr. Selvridge is pretty quickly like, yeah, uh, do it better, monsieur, and walks out. And, and monsieur... he is so angry, he whips up a picture of her face. Yeah. In her face. <laughs> yes. But before Mr. Selfridge has left the room, Miss Love has insisted that they have lunch together that day. And he's like, yeah, totally. Uh, So they're going to have lunch. And uh, then I think we cut back to the National Gallery Uh, mm -hmm. where Mrs. Selfridge is having a conversation with some riffraff. (laughs) <laughs> that's come up next to her. Well, yeah, well, she's looking thought, at a painting. I thought it was Brother George initially, but was not was upon not, no. closer inspection. Just some guy. Uh, but yeah, he comes up and starts talking to her. She's a bit startled mm-hmm. by his presumption, uh, but discussing the painting that they are looking at. Uh, and he, he admires it. And she says, yes, it's uh, rare to see a painting uh, in which a man is brought low by a woman mm-hmm. or something like that, which is an interesting little thing. She's a, she's a feminist, G. Yeah, yeah. And he starts putting the moves on her hardcore. And she, uh, at some point when he introduces himself to her, she introduces herself as Rosalie Buckingham. Uh-huh. Which Buckingham actually was her maiden name. Oh. She was from, it turns out, a prominent Chicago family. The I Buckinghams see. Buckinghams of Chicago. Because that just seemed like she was like, uh, and she saw Buckingham <laughs> like a tourist tote bag or something. Right. Okay, then. Fair enough. Yeah. But, uh... Apparently, British women in London only use maiden names when they're doing false names. Whether it's, you know, Mary Levinson, (laughs) Rosalie Buckingham. Uh, But yeah, he's like, oh, you know, I've got a studio that's that's right around the corner or something, and I'd like to show you something there. I I keep it in my trousers. (laughs) (laughs) Which, to me, was clearly like the implication, because he tells her he was sketching her. Uh huh. In the National Gallery, but she goes along with it. Yeah. Well, and the fact that she gave the fake name indicated to me that she's like, yeah, I could, I could. Well, but again, she's had these seeds of doubt about her husband's well, exactly. fatality planet, so she feels like she's got to go kind of get her licks in. Right. And so I thought, I thought she was going for it. I did too. And I uh, really did. By the way, his paintings look nice. The, the, we, we no, he got seems pretty legit. His yeah, name is Mr. Temple. Yeah. As in the body is one. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, he seemed like a legit painter. Yeah. But I mean, 
nothing else much happens with her, so I guess we can just wrap this up. But, like, she goes over. Yeah. And, you know, she's like, oh, your paintings don't suck. That's cool. Yeah. And he's like, let's make out. And she seems like she's going to for, like, a half of a second. Yeah. But then she's like, you know what? I married. I gotta go. He's like, oh, my God. Can we just pretend that didn't happen? She's like, no. (laughs) You idiot. I don't know why they couldn't have. I mean, you know, he seemed to be properly chastened. He did, but but I don't know, man. Well, I don't know. Uh, regardless, she decides to recuse her. Maybe she doesn't trust herself. She seems to be a fan of the sex herself. It's true. Well, and I mean, I can't imagine that we're not going to see this guy again. Oh, agreed. So, you know. Um, again, though, super bummed that this is happening. Yeah. Was really hoping to avoid the adultery thing. Agreed. But what I'll say about it is, you know, on the, on the, on the flip side, the fact that it is a good marriage sort of, it does actually raise the stakes, you know, That's where a true. lot of adultery is just like, inevitability right you know there there are stakes sort of almost in the politics of the marriage but not the emotional stakes yeah yeah. whereas this that's that's much more present yeah yeah speaking of which (laughs) turns out that uh mr selfridge these nights then he's been working late uh he's actually been going to see new girl the musical review starring one ellen love ellen love uh, I don't remember when we find this out. Right. Whether it's before or after this lunch. Yeah, we're just, we're going in random order at this point. Yeah, so don't worry about that. Really don't remember. Yeah. I was actually, I was very engaged with the plot because my notes really dropped off. Yeah. And I was, I was really like paying attention to it. Oh, by the, about that last thing, the one note I had on the Rose and Temple relationship was an affair to forget. Yeah. <laughs> an affair to remember. <laughs> Not on this show. Right. Yeah, but we know that he has been sort of going to see her and kind of courting her there, uh, kind of. Yeah. Uh, or we find that out later. I don't know. Look, I, yeah. listen, they go out to lunch. Right. She's like, oh, hey, this like, you know, airplane guy is coming here. And he's like, I got to go. Airplane guy. <laughs> yeah. Because I guess he has ADD. Right. And she's like, what is his deal? Yeah. She's like, I am practically having sex with him right now. It's basically like when Ian Malcolm is putting the moves on Dr. Sattler and she runs out to see a sick triceratops. Exactly. And she's just like, but but sex? Yeah. Why are you choosing your job over sex? Exactly. Yeah. Oh, and my other question is whether, like, I wonder the etiquette around using people's first names for the middle classes. Mm. Because she is very familiar with him and he with her. Yeah. They call each other Ellen and Harry. Right, right. But then uh, Mrs. Selfridge seemed kind of upset when she said his first name. So I'm just curious what the etiquette was around that. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, he's bummed because he doesn't have anything good going on in the store. But he's got an idea about this plain guy. Right. Which I guess now, at this point, we should discuss my least favorite thing that has happened so far. Okay. And the thing that makes me so uncomfortable that it's really hard to watch these scenes. Okay. We see at the store this guy come in. He's clearly up to no good. Yeah, he's got a very sketchy mustache yeah. that lets you know. Like, not like mustache mustache. Right. Like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're like, hey, buddy, I don't want any trouble. This mustache is up to no good. Yeah. So he is, you know, flirting and kind of charming one of the girls at one of the accessory uh, counters Mm -hmm. when all of a sudden Miss Towler sees him and runs up to him and is like, what are you doing here? You need to get out. Again, not helpfully telling anybody 
who this man is. Right. Because like, it seems like an ex-boyfriend. It seems situation. like an ex-boyfriend or like a pimp or something. Right. I'm like, was George a fancy boy? I don't <laughs> understand. Yeah. Or, you know, like his boxing promoter. Like, yeah. Who is this person? Yeah. So the, she... Uh, uh, this character, this new mustache guy, by the way, some of you may remember him as the lead in Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. That is all. I did not, but Tom did. Yes. So she says, I've got a break in a half an hour. Come meet me at this tea shop, you know, on this street. It's less of a shop and more of a stand. <laughs> yeah. But let's not quibble over minor details. Let's not. So it turns out it's her dad. Mm-hmm. So that's the person that she was upset about George, like, being like or whatever. Yes. And so he apparently has dried out. Uh, he's one of your classic English alcoholic raging dads. Yes. So he says he hasn't had a drop to drink in two months. He's working at this hotel. He's like back on his feet. He's got and, color in his face again. Yeah. And, and like, oh, P.S. By the way, I'm a little short. Can I come stay with you for like a day yeah. or three days? I'm just trying to. Like definitely not gotta, more than a year. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And she is, you know, skeptical. I mean, she is. I, I believe the way she describes it is that he himself had told them, like, never to see him again. Yeah. Like, in a, you know, moment of sober realization yeah. of how horribly he was treating them. But he he talks his way into it. It's like, you know, she she eventually gives in. She can't turn her father out when he is. I mean, he you know, he... D- his story of having not tr- had a drink for two months is plausible on the face of it. He does. He looks like he does, but you can up, also see that in her reaction that she knows she's making a mistake. Right. Exactly. Because they had not yet invented Al-Anon. Yeah. So yeah, so that's going on. Right. Uh, meanwhile, Georgie Porgy putting in pie <laughs> is down in the loading dock. Yeah. Uh, where he's been introduced to his colleagues, Alf and something else. Right. But Alf is a big fat guy. Alf is a big fat guy. The other guy is non-remarkable. Right. Alf's, so, Alf's his supervisor. Yeah. They they put him through a bit of like light hazing. And yeah. this scene again feels super ominous. Well, right. Because basically all they're doing is making him carry a really heavy bag that nobody would ever actually have to carry. Uh-huh. Um, and, and kind of pushing down on it too when he's yeah, not yeah, and yeah. all this sort of thing. And it is it is just seems to be just sort of light-hearted first day on the job hazing. Except but the, for the way it's shot yeah, and the, set up. You're like, is somebody going to get shot? <laughs> right. What is happening? Yeah. Uh, but somebody might get shot. It's true. Because after all this good fun, which George, who is like, it's it's been much easier in this, seeing him on his own in this job, being able to say, okay, you're kind of simple. Right. Like, this is, this is your deal. Yeah. So he is told by Alf, his supervisor, mm-hmm. that, you know, this is going to be great. You're going to fit in great here. Everything is going to be wonderful. We're loading things onto the green vans. But every once in a while... I'll tell you something special and it's got to go in the special blue van. Right. But don't tell anybody because it's like for the, you know, the executives and they like to keep that kind of thing quiet. So right. don't tell anybody. And I just, my heart literally ripped itself from my chest and yes. threw it out the window <laughs> Yeah, because I just, Oh, I yep. hate things like this where people are taken advantage of yeah. in this way. Like yeah. it just really upsets me. Yeah. But look, it ties into my larger issues with their dad. Right. Because those scenes are excruciating. Yeah. And this one's bad too. But look, that guy's parents didn't name him Alf, so he could not grow up to a life of petty crime. Like, <sighs> I know. <laughs> That's fine. He can commit all the petty crimes he wants. I just don't want poor, sweet, pure George I know. dragged into it like this. I don't either. 
but no i like you know i like both of the towel like george comes across way better in this episode yeah yeah well like we just get a better look well, we at know him who and, the hell he is at this right, point right. which is extremely helpful yeah um but like i i like him and al uh i keep wanting to call her alice even though her name is aggie yeah uh you know like the marble <laughs> but uh I, I I really want things to be okay for them. And the thing that gets set up in this episode is like there's so many people for whom you're like, are things going to not be okay for you? Right. Because I thought this was just a, like a nice show about nice people being nice. You right. know, like Dr. Quinn without that horrible pimp. <laughs> Which, and a lot of it is too. Like there's a lot of things that would get handled much more like sort of controversially on other shows. Yeah. But are just resolved by people kind of working things out. Yeah, it's nice. But again, I'm but, just like, uh, is everything going to go to shit? <laughs> it can't possibly... Like, is Mr. Is, Selfridge the only one who succeeds in this show because his store lasts? Like, is the people going to die? <laughs> I hope not. Oh, God, I hope not. Yeah. Um. Oh, and we should also mention, we did get a weird, weird scene of the ginger and Miss Mumble in the bathtub. In the bathtub. And like, oh, look, ugh. there are some people in the world that I would be happy to see in a bathtub. These two ain't it. Yeah. And they're talking about how... Like, they first say, oh, I, I'm so glad we've, uh, you know, something about I've missed our Tuesday night. Yeah. Our Tuesday night bath, I guess. Like, It's so creepy. Yeah. It's like a McPoyle moment. <laughs> it is. From It's Always Sunny. Like, yeah. that's how it feels. You're like, what are you doing? Yeah. Is that bath filled with milk? Yeah. But on Mr. Grove, he can't, like us, can't figure out Agnes. He says, is like, you know, sometimes you wouldn't, she's so cold, you wouldn't think butter would melt in her mouth. Uh-huh. But then I saw her put some butter in her mouth and it seemed fine. <laughs> I don't get it. <laughs> No, and Miss Mumble is, like, worried that she's going to go tell his wife. And I'm like, you know what? She's got her own domestic drama to deal with. And he rightly points out that she would have nothing to gain from that. Right, right. You know, I mean, she's just being paranoid about it. And, you know, because Mr. Grove has the advantage of having actually sort of dealt with her and, you know. That's true. Well, and he's also, you know, he's not the one who's going to get blamed and sacked, most likely. Well, yeah. I don't know. It's hard to say. It's hard to say, but... He is both a man and higher in the company. I mean, considering that Mr. Selfridge is setting himself up to commit some spectacular adultery yeah. in this episode, uh, maybe he'll be more forgiving. Yes. But it may be, a, you know, okay for me and not for the kind of thing. Certainly. And in any case, we do hope that we don't get many more bath scenes between these two. Really not interested. My note was that it's like seeing two Anthony Strallens. <laughs> in the bath. In the bath. Oh dear. Oh dear. Have you done something jolly with your bath? <laughs> uh by the way, I love that painter. I'm leaving you for that fictional painter. Okay. I've decided. Uh cool. Cool. Great. Uh Lady Mary's available now. So, oh great. Yeah. Well, then uh it's been a pleasure. <laughs> End of podcast. <laughs> JK, you guys. Yeah. Uh yeah. So All right. Uh, want to cut back to the pilot? Yeah, because, yeah. All right. That's like a major plot point, even though to me it's actually like the least interesting thing that happened this whole time. Sure. But it's kind of the centerpiece of the episode. Uh, so we, we are going to meet, uh, the guy's name is, uh, Blario, Monsieur Blario, Pierre maybe? I forget what his first name was. I think it was Pierre. Um, but he, you know, he is the first person to have flown a heavier than aircraft across the English Channel. 
winning a thousand pound prize from the Daily Mail. Uh, he got rich by inventing the first practical headlamp for cars. Hmm. Um, and so that, that was where he got his money. And he's, he also invented the first monoplane. You know, the Wright Brothers plane was a biplane. Yes, yes. So, you know, he was the first one to build a plane that just had one set of wings. So that, that was, those are sort of his claims to fame. Okay. But yeah, we see, basically it's Mr. Selford. I, I think they're just sort of driving, they know he's making the attempt and they're just sort of driving around the south of England, keeping an eye on the sky for him. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, he, it was the first time anybody done it. He himself didn't know where he was going to end up. He thought up. he was going to die. Yeah. As we discover. Yeah. So they track him down to his landing place where uh, apparently a bunch of journalists have also been doing the same thing because well, the daily mail has a thousand pounds to pay well exactly so there's there's journalists gathering and photographs being taken and mr selfridge just walks right up into the middle of it and introduces himself and starts shaking his hand mm-hmm. and the pilot's like uh, these people are here to take pictures of me not you what's your deal yeah and he's like come on just give me five minutes to convince you five minutes and if you don't like it i'll be out of your life forever and he's like fine three minutes mm-hmm. and so he takes them off and uh, puts the moves on him very, and it's very interesting because basically what it just does is ask him questions. He's mm-hmm. like, what was that like? What was it like being up there all alone? Yeah. And he says, I was afraid I was going to die. Uh, how you say a squall came up and the clouds came down. And I couldn't see anything and I was just being buffeted up and down and I was flying blind and eventually I came through and I, I saw a place to land and here I am, this mm-hmm. sort of thing. And Mr. Selfridge, I mean, very clearly, sincerely is like flying blind. I, you know, I know what you mean. Mm-hmm. Like just being out, you know, being in over your head sort of and, yeah. and all that sort of thing. And they, you know, he sells them by just simply connecting with them. And yeah, they have something in common. Yeah. And they, they see that kindred spirit in each other. And that's it. Blair is like, all right, I'm, I'm on board with whatever your scheme is. And then they have a madcap photo shoot. Yes. Which is. Poorly handled yeah. by the show. Yeah. Because it's all like in grainy black and white. And it's like, ah, it's like, yeah. you know, Nickelodeon music. And <laughs> right. It's, uh, yeah. So uh, he's engaged the pilot to come in and, uh, you know, put his plane in the store. Right. You know, and let anybody who comes in see it. They've ordered 4,000 scarves in the colors of conveniently both the French and the uh, British flags. Mm-hmm. It's and not he, clear how much everybody knows about it at this point. Like, I don't think right. a lot of the staff understand exactly what's happening. Yeah. You see him saying, like, okay, the headline's going to be Calais to Dover to Selfridges, uh-huh. you know, and, and see this mar- modern marvel and, and all this yeah. sort of thing and, and building th- building it up. Um, and, yeah, and it, you know, it, it seems to work. Like, yes. everybody's super excited to see this thing. Uh, you hear somebody saying, extra, extra, plane at Selfridges or whatever. And yeah. I was like, boy, slow news day. But then I was like, you know what? That that's, would be big news. That's basically the equivalent of the space shuttle. And they did say extra, extra. Right. It wasn't in the main edition. <laughs> God. It's like you don't know how newspapers work. Oh, you're right. Just because it's old timey, I assume that all newspapers were extras. No. You know, because that's all not. you ever hear anybody say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so back up at the Palm Court restaurant – our young, intrepid waiter is waiting on a uh, rather portly, but not 
unattractive yeah, woman. Yeah, not unattractive. She kind of she's... looks like Samantha Jones of Sex and the City gone to seed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, you know, she's very well put together. She's got a really elaborate hairdo. Mm-hmm. Uh, portrait hats are in this show. Yes. Which we've missed. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, the style went so far to close no, we on liked, Downton Abbey. No, we like getting back to the older styles We really bit. just like being in Wardian England again. It's like we yeah. know what's going on. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, she's very impressed by his service and presumably his bum. <laughs> and is like, oh, I'm having a little party tomorrow. You know, we could use a first class waiter there. You know, here's my card. I'll send a chauffeur for you at 630. Yeah. And he's like, okay. He's like, all right, all right. This must be what my boss was talking about. Yeah. I'm going to go be a waiter. I'm going to give him drinks. Extra waitering. That's exactly Extra waitering. what these women this is need. Exact, yeah, that'll help me when I want to open my restaurant. This is what single women need. Waiters. Yeah. So uh, that goes down. And uh, later, he receives a box of truffles from this woman, mm-hmm. along with a card that says, oh, I can't wait for our little party tomorrow. Right. Which Mr. Perez sees, because he's the one who's, like, received it. Right. And he's like, oh, hey, you know, I used to be quite the young stud. When I was a young waiter, you're going to have a lot of fun, dude. Yeah. Like, go out there, get that pussy. Yeah, you're not young forever. Yeah. Have a good time. You can yeah. make so much money. And the kid's like, okay, I yeah, guess because this is... it was entirely clear to everybody else, but this seems to be the first point at which he'd realized that, that she wanted him to th- service her exclusively. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. so he turns around and takes the chocolates down to Miss Towler. Yeah. Uh, as soon as Miss Mumble is out of the way. Yeah. But the, like the caddy girls are still there and I'm like, you don't want them seeing you fraternizing. Right. They will throw you under the bus so fast. Yeah. They'd but love he, to. He gives her the chocolates and, you know, he tries to convince her to, uh, go do something with him that night. Yeah. Get a cup of tea or something after yeah, work. Yeah, a cup of tea or, you know, a date. Yeah. Uh, and she's like, no, you know, I'll get in trouble. And also, you know, she has her alcoholic father to look after. Right. She, she tells th- him it's a private matter. Right. Uh, he's like, all right, whatever. And you're like, well, okay, I guess he's going to go fuck that lady. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. Anyway, and then she has a scene with the two bitchy girls. And they all seem to actually be getting along a little bit better. I guess so. They're like, oh, he likes you. And she's like, nah, uh. They're like, yeah, huh? And then <laughs> right. they all eat chocolate. <laughs> and the other one that's not Kitty accuses Kitty of being cheeky for reasons that I did not understand. Yeah. So that's that. So that was pretty much what happened there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then wrapping that arc up for the episode, the woman that was attempting to hire Waiter Joe uh pulls up in her carriage for him to to pick him up she's like oh i thought i'd come pick you up myself and he's like sorry i've uh had a it turns out it's against company policy yeah i can't do it goodbye yeah i was like but it's exactly company policy you were specifically told <laughs> company policy is to sleep with the guests no i'm curious well and honestly you know if he wants to own his own restaurant no. that would be a great way to fundraise it seems like a good idea <laughs> But he has only eyes for Miss Towler. For some reason. She's pretty enough, but she's so obtuse. Yeah. I, don't, I mean... I don't get her. You know, I... I Better than a life of prostitution, oh, I suppose. Oh, yeah, 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 But can't you have both? <laughs> have you had both? <laughs> we want to hear your story. <laughs> we won't um, use your real name. So, Monsieur Leclerc has freaking had it <laughs> with Mr. Selfridge and his crazy whims. Yeah. And he tenders his resignation to our ginger. 
and he says, I'm not doing this anymore. Yeah. He asks me to do the impossible. I give him the impossible and then he just gives me more. He never thanks me. Yeah. Uh, but the ginger manages to sort of talk him down. He's like, we, yeah. we sleep on it. He's like, I don't want to lose you. Right. As my colleague. And I guarantee you that he'll say, you know, that you're a genius before the day is out. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I, one thing I like about it is that, uh, Monsieur beats him to the elevator. And so he runs all the way down the stairs and catches him and catches him, yeah. which is impressive. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so he basically is like, okay, fine. I'll like think about not quitting, right? But not, you know, because I want to, not because you told me to. <laughs> yeah. We see a scene of George and Aggie going home with their dad. He's like sober. He's like drinking a mug of tea. He's like, see, yeah. see, look at this tea. Look at this tea. It's definitely tea. <laughs> what you you don't think it's tea? Drink it. Drink it. Drink it. <laughs> uh, and you know, he, and they're they're ex, you know kind of telling him a bit about their jobs. They're both very like wary. Yeah, well, and, George in particular because well, he, he seems to have been the recipient of most of the abuse. Yeah. Uh, well, and also he you know was not consulted. No, he was not consulted. Yeah. And he's and like, his, you said we'd never have to see him again. Yeah. And yeah. it's just horrible. Well, and even even in his good guy sober mode, he is... Is a complete dick. Yeah. Just like, the worst. Just like backhanded compliments to George for finally having a job mm-hmm. and all this sort of thing. It's awful. It's, it's awful. <sighs> Let's not talk about that anymore. Well, we can finish, you know, yeah. because of course the next day after the big triumph... Yeah. Which we'll get to. They come home and he, of course, is drunk. And because he's upset because they work at the store and he's like, oh, you work for the big man with his airplane. Well, because he's he's a bit of a socialist. He greets them the first time they come home with welcome home, workers of the world. Oh, I didn't realize yeah. that. You'd yeah. think I would have picked up on it. <laughs> yeah. No, he's he's definitely he's he's read some pamphlets. OK. Well, then he would know that uh, in addition to uh, religion alcohol is also the opiate of the masses <laughs> yeah alcohol is really the opiate of the masses yeah like, that's true opium is the opiate of the elite <laughs> <laughs> so he just like lays into them for working for mr selfridge right. and you know they're saying oh you know it's a good job with lots of chance for promotion he's like oh like not like me like getting up in a dead end like did you get fired like what happened <laughs> But he starts roughing up George, and it's, again, horrible. Yeah. And I really hope that this arc does not last much longer, because I <laughs> seriously cannot take it. Yeah. Like, it's, it's just... It's rough. I mean, and I mean, it's to the credit of the show how yeah. bad it is to right. watch, because it's just... You can just see the amount of pain he has inflicted on these two people. Yeah, the, the writing and performances of this story, like, it really, you know... All the relationships, you understand them, you see how they've gotten to this point. Yeah. It's just horrible because it's meant to be horrible. Yeah. It's yeah. just very painful. Yeah. On to happier things. <laughs> uh, so the uh, exhibition of the plane is a great success. Uh, oh, shit. Wait. Before we talk about that, okay. we have to talk about – okay. So after the lunch and everything, uh, Mr. Selfridge goes to the theater – to see New Girl and to see Miss Love. Mm-hmm. He goes in to see her and he's like, oh, yeah, sorry about lunch, but I have a plane for you to like sit in. And she's like, oh, you want to take me flying? And then they make out. And again, I just don't yeah. feel that there's any chemistry between them. Well, I don't either. I agree with you there. I just – there was way more chemistry between Rose and Mr. Temple. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. I just don't get it from from – you know, unless Mr. Selfridge is just – 
unless Mr. Selfridge is just committing adultery to further his career in this particular instance. Mm -hmm. But he just doesn't seem to be that interested in her. So anyway, they start to to do it. And then she's like, somebody might come in. He's like, I don't give a damn. But then Nancy, her like random friend comes in. Well, she's sort of like her, like, you know, her almost assistant, you know, and I just have a note that I would just hate to be Nancy. Oh (laughs) God. Yeah. How many times does she walk in on this? Yeah. Um, so she comes in and like he freaks out even though you know literally 10 seconds ago didn't give a damn right uh and she's like it's only nancy he's like well who might it be next time blah, 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 blah. so right. he leaves and it's like whatever yeah but then the next day they're at the big exhibition and you know miss love is is sitting in the plane waving to the people and, right. and you know being very like sultry looking yeah and uh Rose and her mother-in-law and the kids come, of course, to see the plane. And, and you know, Mr. Selfridge is running around, like, shaking hands and everything. Mm-hmm. Notably, not looking anywhere in the direction of, of Miss Love. Yes. Uh, but, unfortunately, Lady May is there. Uh, much like the episode of The Simpsons where they try to join the country <laughs> club. And that one, Robert Taz, like, I hope she didn't take my attempt to destroy her too seriously. <laughs> yes. But she's like, oh, damn. She's like, look how sultry she looks. Like, how sexy. Sex, 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 sex. Right. P.S. Sex. <laughs> uh, and Rose becomes very uncomfortable because... Yeah. She at least thinks she's beginning to see the writing on the wall as far as this is concerned. And she's not wrong, although we don't agree with the direction that the plot line is yeah. going in. Here, here. Um, but she, like, tries to leave. And Mr. Selvage is like, no, 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 don't leave. Like, I need you here. Like, yeah. he wants her support. Yeah. But she's like, oh, no, I'm just, like, in the way. And she, like, excuses herself. Yeah. And it's, like, super awkward. Yeah. Um, but overall, like, it all goes over. You know, yeah, he, the, he introduces the pilot. They they sell plenty of things. Right. You know, Mr. Crab is finally happy. Yeah. Uh, and then I think it's the final scene. Miss mm-hmm. uh, Love receives. She may have received the fur coat earlier. I think she did. He yeah. gave her like this fantastic fur coat. Mm-hmm. And she said to Nancy, oh, this is my ticket out of here. Yeah. Which I didn't quite understand because she had said to him like when they agreed that she would be the spirit of Selfridges, she wasn't going to give up the theater. Right. And I was like, did you no, say I know. Yeah. you like, didn't want to leave? Yeah. So like, do you like the theater or not? What's... But it turns out she does like the theater. She doesn't like to live at the theater uh, as she's yes. currently doing. Uh, which is solved for her when Mr. Selfridge rents her an apartment at St. James Woods. No, that is an actor. St. James. St. John's Woods? St. John's Woods. Yeah. yeah, but it's very posh, yeah, it's, as she says. It's, yeah. And he sent her a key and a message that says no more interruptions. Yeah. So he's clearly committing to this banging her plan for the long haul. Yeah, which, which does not make us happy. It really doesn't. Again, there's a million ways that this could have gone that I would have been okay with it, but I cannot get over the fact that A, he has no chemistry with her, right. and B, what about Francis O'Connor? Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. And, and so I, that, I guess we'll see. Right. That, and which brings us sort of to final thoughts about Mr. Selfridge. Yes. You know, which I, you know, I think in terms of things, we're worried about going forward. That's certainly one of them that we don't like this development. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, one thing for me is that I do wonder if as it goes on, uh, 
problem solving through inspirational speeches might get a bit repetitive. That's true. Um, and, and, you know, sort of lose its interest. Because the thing about this show compared to Downton Abbey is it's, it's more centralized plot wise. Yeah, it's very single minded. Yeah. Um, there's, there's not as many side things going on, uh, which is, you know, we like that fine. Uh, but, you know, it just sort of, you know, it's the, all their, the thing about Downton it's about Abbey the is, store. right, it's about the store. And the and store can grow and change in a way that, you know, Downton Abbey being about Downton Abbey, Downton Abbey cannot really grow and change well, in the same way as this store. That's true. But what I was going to say is Downton Abbey always has like 10 different things going on. And if one of them seems to not be going anywhere, they can always just cut bait on it and jump over to some other storyline. Mm-hmm. But they don't have as much of that ability Yeah, it seems here. like there's only about five or six things going on here. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, as we said, we like the show. I mean, I yeah, think, I like the performances overall. Yeah. I think it's a really interesting time period and a really interesting piece of history to be exploring. Yeah, and uh, you know, I not sure what all the criticism is about to an extent. I mean, if you're comparing it to Downton Abbey season one, yeah, there's yeah, you're no going to be completely disappointed. But, but if you're just kind of looking for something to watch in the interim that's set literally in the same time period, I mean, it's four years right before Downton Abbey actually starts. Yeah. But, you know, I think it's perfectly fine. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's certainly way better than Julian Fellow's Titanic. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, it's unbelievable yeah. how much better it is than that. Like, that was our concern. That was what we kind of imagined. Yeah, that's sort of like our, <laughs> our F grade. <laughs> right. <laughs> We're like, is this going to be another one of these? Yeah. Yeah, so we'll, uh, we'll stick with it and just yeah. see where it goes. You know, we may ultimately, uh, feel it was a waste of time, but. Right. You know, we've got to do something until Downton comes back. <laughs> That's right. And it's just eight episodes, so we'll uh, we'll wrap them up and we'll see where we end up. Absolutely. Well, I think that does it for episodes one slash two slash premiere <laughs> of Mr. Selfridge. Until next time, up, up yours, yours downstairs, downstairs luncheon hour.